This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I think one of the more interesting presidential candidates this year is a Republican by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy. I've talked about him before, and he's a millennial. I think he's about 39 years old. If he were to be elected president, he would be the youngest person ever to hold the job. He is born in this country, but he is the son of Indian immigrants And what I like about him is he's totally politically incorrect. He's able, because he is a person of color, he's able to talk about race issues in a manner that, if he were white, would have him dismissed as a racist. But you can't do it because his skin is darker than a lot of of other people's. So anyway, he had an interesting proposal this year, which I'm opposed to, and I'll tell you why. But I want to – this week, rather – Uh, But I want to tell you about it and get your take on this if you haven't heard about it. So he was in Iowa this week, and he has touted a very provocative proposal to raise the minimum voting age for most. Actually, he's not even 39. He's only 37. To raise the minimum voting age for most Americans from 18 to 25 years of age. The proposal would basically involve meeting one of several requirements to vote before turning 25, such as passing a civics test. So if you pass a civics test before the age of 25, then you can still vote at 18. But for everybody else, you can't vote until the age of of, uh, of 25. So basically, he says he wants more civic engagement. His hypothesis is that when you attach greater value to the act, we will see more 18 to 25-year-olds actually voting than do now. Vivek Ramaswamy was on with Michael Smirkanish on Saturday on CNN. This is what he had to say. So, look, I think it's best to start fresh with the next generation of Americans. So the constitutional amendment that I've expressed support for is to raise the voting age from 18 to 25, but still allow 18-year-olds to vote if they at least pass the same civics test required of naturalized citizens or they perform at least six months of military service or at least six months of first responder service, such as in the police. This is not an unfamiliar notion, Michael. And I'll tell you two things about this. In 1971, when we lowered the voting age to 18 in the first place, that was in the context of actually the military draft. That was the whole justification in the first place for making the voting age 18 at all. And then in addition to that, we already have selective service mandated. People forget this in the U.S. for adult men between the ages of 18 and 25. That exists today. Every adult male, if they're following the law, has to do it already. So I'm building on already familiar intuitions, instincts already based into our history and even the current law to say, how are we going to revive civic pride in the next generation, which is one of my top concerns, Michael. I am against this. I'll explain why. But I give him credit for bringing this up. I mean, this is what presidential campaigns, especially from outsiders, are supposed to be all about, bringing up new ideas and getting a conversation going. Now, irrespective of what you think 
of Vivek Ramaswamy, and he's got so much money that he just is not going to be ignored, as most people that have never run for office or held elective office who uh, are new to politics would be if they were running for president. And he's got some high-profile people attached uh, to his campaign. Corey Lewandowski, for instance, President Trump's former campaign manager, he's apparently involved with this fella. I'm curious what you think of this idea of raising the voting age to 25 unless you pass a civics test or do six months of military service. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. For starters, I am all for, as I've said a hundred times, including last week in the context of that Richard Dreyfus discussion, I am all for ramping up civics education in this country. We have, forget about youth, we have some of the least civically educated citizens in the world. You talk to a European, you talk to a lot of Africans, you talk to a South American about how their government works, and they will describe it to you in a level of detail that most rank-and-file Americans are unable to describe it. You ask people to explain the three branches of government and who does what, and a lot of times you're just dumbfounded at what they come up with, not necessarily in this audience, but just in general. I'm also for mandating some type of national service, whether it's uh, the military, whether it's first responders, whether it's teaching fellowship, whether it's uh, the Peace Corps. I think it would be a tremendous character-building exercise in making um, some sort of service mandatory. I also think it would allow young people to really become stakeholders in this country and learn what it's like to devote themselves to a cause greater than themselves. That being said, as this Constitution stands now, this is completely unconstitutional, which is why this requires a constitutional amendment. I'm against this for a few reasons. One, this does sound a lot like the literacy tests that they used to make people pass in the Jim Crow era, and I I don't like the optics of that at all. Additionally, people who are stupid have just as much of a right to vote as the brightest, most intelligent people in this country because whoever's elected president, whoever's elected governor – They have as much control over that unintelligent person as they do over the smartest person you've ever met. Additionally, I just don't like the idea of treating similarly situated 20-year-olds differently. Either you're eligible to vote at the age of 18 or you're not. Carving out this exception for people that pass a civics test or uh, decide to participate in some, some sort of national service... I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I'm all for civics education. I'm all for mandating some sort of service. I am not for making it so that if you're not a soldier or a scholar, you're not a citizen. People should have the full rights of citizenship, in my opinion, at the same time. So it almost reminds me of, I guess it was Sparta, where if you weren't a soldier, you weren't a citizen. And I don't I don't like that one bit. Uh, people have the right to be foolish. And if they can't pass a civics test, you know what? Shame on us for producing young people that don't know what um, the the basics of the government are. So I am I, I'm glad Vivek Ramaswamy is bringing this up. I am 
not in favor of it. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Michael. Hello, Michael. Hey, always good to talk to you, and I know you enjoyed my perspicacity. I say this is discriminating against the black community because, unfortunately, look at the public school records here in the city, Baltimore, etc., that so few in the black community graduate, actually graduate by testing from high school. Well, so. I, yeah, I mean, and thank you, Michael. The the schools in a lot of black neighborhoods, quite frankly, are just not up to snuff. That's true. Does that make this proposal anti-black? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, we should be looking to improve education for everybody. And the fact of the matter is a lot of these failing schools are dominated by minority students, I'm all for, one, having a discussion as to why that's the case, two, looking at how we can improve these schools, but also giving parents that want alternatives, like a charter school, for instance, an opportunity to send their child to a charter school so uh, or, or other educational alter- alternatives as well. So uh, I don't think it's anti-black. Uh, I, I don't. But... Um, I guess I understand your point. 800-848-9222, open lines. David is in the Bronx. David, I saw you, I think, emailing me or tweeting about this uh, the other day. Yes, and I'll just repeat basically what my line of thinking was. And by the way, I don't think it's racial-based either. Uh, so I guess that'll surprise some people. But this notion it sounds to me like something that came straight out of Starship Troopers, and I don't know if you've seen that movie. I did, yes, I, I do, oh. but let's assume a lot of the audience hasn't. Refresh their recollection. Okay, in that movie, in order to become a citizen of, I guess it was a world government in that movie, but you could argue for the United States, you had to serve in the military, okay, in order to become a citizen. Now, this is very similar because you have, according to him, you have to serve in the military or do some other kind of public service or pass the citizenship test. Now, that is not an American ideal. This reminds me of some of the testing that they used to try – I mean to bring it back to race for a moment. They used to subject black people to, to exams to vote in the South. We don't need to go back to that. And the reason that he came up with this, let's be honest, is because young people are trending democratic. And he wants to suppress Democratic votes. But to rip off a movie about fascism, which is what Starship Troopers was really about, says a lot about that candidate. And it's nothing good, Frank. Thank you, David. I don't think it's an effort to suppress Democrats. I don't. I um, I think maybe he's trying to pander to older voters. You know, I, I don't even know if I would go that so, uh, so far as to say he's trying to pander to older voters. I think what he's trying to do is exactly what he's done which is proposing something that's totally outside the box and get talked about and utilize earned media for someone who, even even though he's got a lot of money and he's been on a lot of TV shows, he does not have the same name recognition as a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis or a Mike Pence or even a Nikki Haley, perhaps. So I, I think he's just trying to get attention for himself. That's what I see it as. I, I don't see it as a... A strategy designed to suppress Democratic voters at all. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Vito, what's on your mind, Vito? 
Hey, Frank, how are you? Um, two things. One of a politician's worst fear is an educated voter. I don't mean educated by, you know, school. I mean, knowing how the system runs. And number two, I believe if you're on welfare, you shouldn't be allowed to vote at all until you get off of welfare. Then you can vote. Well, and tell, tell us why. Why? Because you don't have skin in the game if you're, if, if, if you're, on, if you're on the government tent. You'll, you'll keep voting for whoever's giving you all the, you know, whatever you need for welfare. Well, whatever you I mean, want. There but you couldn't, you, couldn't you say the same thing uh, about people that vote for, uh, vote for if they have a company, um, whatever the company is. Maybe it's uh, solar panels. Maybe it's the Buffalo Bills that are getting giant subsidies from the government. Couldn't you say the same thing about those folks? Maybe, but but still at the same time, like for you instance, in uh, need in, the government, you need the government to survive. Right, and I have no problem with the government helping you out. But yeah, the problem but, is if you if you don't have skin in the game, you shouldn't be. You should not be allowed yeah. to vote. I, I don't agree. The taxpayers should come first. I, I, well, I agree. I, thank you, Vito. One, um, keep in mind that if you're getting welfare, you are paying taxes. You also you, you even if you're not paying income taxes, you pay sales taxes. Sometimes you may be paying property taxes if you own uh, property. You pay the uh, all the local taxes that are involved in use fees and things of that nature. Also, I think it's a dubious argument to um, make people that are on welfare in a different category than people that get, say, corporate welfare. I mean, the Buffalo Bills deal that uh, the, uh, these giant giveaway of our money to a private company so they can make money. I think that's far more egregious than somebody that's fallen on hard times and gets paid. So if we're going to talk about um, taking away the right to vote to welfare recipients, let's also talk about taking the right to vote from the person that owns the sports team. And it's not just the Bills. I know it's the Dallas Cowboys, etc., uh, that is getting hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies. Uh, also, by the way, speaking of sports, I got the word from Wyatt on our Nevada Talk Radio Network affiliates that our Nevada audience is particularly excited today because the Golden Knights won game six and are heading for the Western Conference Finals. Well, I'll tell you what. I don't have any New York teams that I'm rooting for at the moment in the NBA playoffs. I'll root for the Golden Knights. Good luck to them. Congratulations to all those Nevada fans. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Trying to understand 
understand why you won't let me This is a, a new song. It's called Could Have Been Something by a wonderful singer uh, by the name of Natalie Blue. And Natalie, believe it or not, is actually my wife's sister-in-law. She, she's married to my brother-in-law, David. So that actually makes her, as we've learned previously, my co-sister-in-law, as I, I believe that's the proper terminology. So uh, it's a great song. It's called Could Have Been Something. I think it's available on YouTube and iTunes and wherever else. She's got really an incredible voice. And uh, she she was someone that uh, sang at our, uh, our wedding. Now, well, she didn't sing. She was dancing. And we played her song. And then she got on the live microphone and started singing her own song. Not this one, but another one that she's done. That's great. And um, there was one of those moments where everybody at the wedding stopped to say, wow, who's that singing? Uh, so, yeah, it's a great song. Very, very proud of her. I mean, what a voice, really. Uh, Natalie Blue. Uh, so I definitely recommend that you check her out if you can. Hey, uh, talking about this situation involving this proposal to only allow voters to vote if the, under the age of 25 if they've passed a civics test or if they've served in the military. I think it's great that Vivek Ramaswamy is bringing this up. I don't love the idea. Curious what you think. I'll continue with your calls in a minute. 800-848-9222. There is a crisis when it comes to mental illness in this country. I'm going to be joined a little later by longtime psychiatrist, best-selling author, Dr. Keith Ablo. We're going to talk not only about the Jordan Neely situation, but the situation of this blogger that unfortunately killed herself. And some people are saying it's tied to some of the criticism that we've seen. So there's a real problem with mental illness in this country and how it's addressed. We're going to get into it with uh, Dr. Ablo a little bit later on. And some fascinating news out of Mars. I'm going to get into this on Wednesday with Dr. Sky. But I did want to mention this next hour, this ancient riverbed that's been discovered in Mars. And this is not science fiction, but it really makes you think. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit next hour. I know a lot of people are, and those of you that are holding on, I'll get to you in a moment. A lot of people have been following this immigration situation. And I said on this program three days ago that I thought the expiration of Title 42 would be a big problem and lead to an influx, a surge in migrants even though the Biden administration did make a couple of common sense changes in anticipation of this. These are changes that it should have been made long ago. Whatever your view is of immigration, they're really, and I, I really, my heart goes out. I've read the stories of a lot of these migrants that are fleeing gang violence, that are fleeing poverty, that are fleeing uh, all sorts of really tough situations. My heart goes out to these families. I'm not inhuman. But at the same time, I really do think that the border has to mean something and that the United States 
cannot solve the world's poverty problem and the cities of the United States cannot solve solve the world's uh, violence problem. And I don't think we should continue, and I'm well aware of the Emma Lazarus poem that's on the Statue of Liberty, but I don't think that we're in a position right now as a country and municipalities are in a place to be a home base for people that are being persecuted everywhere else or fleeing everywhere else. I have no problem doing what we can to pitch in. But I think this is totally untenable. Whatever your view of immigration, I don't think, you know, this really hit home for me right before the show. I got a call from a friend of mine. And a friend of his, not somebody I know, is 69 years old and is about to be homeless. And he's fallen on hard times and he didn't want to get into the details. But he said to me, and this is not a conservative guy that called me to talk about this. He said to me, how can it be that 60,000 migrants can come here to New York and get housing and in some nice places, too? And yet this guy that I know, who's been a longtime friend of mine, a lifelong New Yorker, a taxpayer, a good, upstanding citizen, he's in a position where he's now going to be homeless. And um, that really hammers home, I think, the dichotomy with where we are in terms of the handling of the situation. And I really think the Biden administration's border policies have been a tremendous failure. And it's especially true of Title 42, this pandemic-era public health order that for the last three years, under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, allowed border officials to expel immigrants quickly back to Mexico. It came to an end on Thursday when the COVID public health emergency officially ended. And its ending has coincided with what can really only be described as chaos at the border over the last week. Border Patrol agents are now arresting more than 10,000 migrants every day. And if you have no context for what that number means, consider that in March of 2019, at the onset of the last border crisis, Border Patrol was arresting 4,000 immigrants a day. At the time, President Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, said, I know that 1,000 apprehensions overwhelms the system, and I cannot begin to imagine what 4,000 a day looks like. Now, the other thing you got to keep in mind is all these people are going to be processed, or at least eventually they're supposed to be processed. Some of these court dates that these asylum seekers are getting, 2035, 12 years from now, what are they going to be doing for the next 12 years? I, I think you can imagine what a lot of them are going to be doing. Uh, what 10000 a day looks like is a catastrophe. Border Patrol has nowhere to put these people. And if this keeps up for much longer, we're going to see a string of what amounts to basically massive migrant camps appearing all over the southern border. In New Mexico, in Arizona, in Texas, in California. And 10000 a day means that the border is collapsing. Uh, So I think Title 42 was never going to be an answer. And I think until we do something um, to deal with the long-term border strategy, this is just going to continue to get worse. So Title 42 was invoked in the early days of the pandemic as a way to slow the spread of the disease. And it made sense in that context. 
The last thing you want in a pandemic is uncontrolled mass migration. But it really did become clear that ending Title 42 essentially would risk unleashing chaos. So as much as the Biden administration denounced Trump's border policies, Biden kept Title 42 in place for years as a way to manage the flow of illegal immigration. But now that Title 42 is ending, we see the federal government's, I don't know what you call it, the immigration bureaucracy grinding into action to manage a situation that our laws simply can't handle. So I don't know what the outcome of Biden's plan is going to be, but whatever it amount, but whatever it is, it amounts to government by essentially bureaucratic and administrative fiat. It demonstrates the um, kind of uh, the bureaucracy triumphing over our elected leadership. And in the end, the only thing that will end this ongoing border crisis is to fix our asylum and immigration laws so they can't be exploited by people coming here who make bogus asylum claims. Programs like Title 42 or even the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy, they're stopgaps at best. So to secure the border, you need real laws that mandate a secure border. You need to close these asylum loopholes, and you need to immediately deport people who crossed illegally. And, I know this became controversial because Donald Trump said it, I think you need a wall, ultimately. And I don't think that should be a partisan issue. I think, you know, who the biggest cheerleaders of a strong border should be? Democrats. Democrats who fight for the working class and who want to protect low-income wage earners. Why do you want a new flow of cheap labor coming into the country to suppress wages? I I wouldn't think that would serve the interests of people that are currently Democratic voters. All right, 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on uh, anything that we've covered thus far. Keith Ablo coming up, commendations coming up, Mars discussion coming up, a lot of fun things coming up. 800-848-9222. Uh, Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hello, Frank. Um, yeah, I want to comment on that voting thing. First sure. of all, um, you know, I don't think you should really be that cynical without knowing the guy better about his proposal because this guy sounds downright brilliant. Um, I, I, I agree almost 100% with his voting recommendation, except for the fact that I think 25 is too high. The age should be 22 with all the other provisions about exceptions to the military and the civic exam for 18-year-olds. And the reason I say 22 is because I think the average college graduate is about 21. It should be given one year to recover from the extremism of these universities, sober up in the real world, and then see things for themselves. But I'll tell you, even when I graduated college at 20 or 21, and there was no extremism, I majored in political science, and I couldn't understand the New York Times when I graduated. Well, uh, so I mean, twenty-two, Larry, uh, thank you for the call. I respectfully disagree. Just because you didn't get a good education doesn't mean that other people didn't. And I, I think it's unfair to apply the Larry standard to others. My view is keep it at 18. As Vivek Ramaswamy himself said, men 
still have to register for the selective service at 18 years old. I carry around my selective service card. It's been in my wallet since I was 18. And uh, I think as long as you're forcing 18-year-olds to register for the selective service, they should have the right to vote. Also, keep in mind that the young people are going to have to live in this country a lot longer than the rest of us. Keep in mind that it's the young folks that are going to have to pay the taxes to keep Social Security and Medicare afloat. Keep in mind that whether it's uh, gun violence, whether it's uh, the environment, whether it's uh, policing, the young people are going to have to live with the consequences of all the things that the voters do. So I think it's totally unfair to uh, take this right to vote away from young people. Some people might even say it's unfair to Flair. Well, they said Flair wasn't fair about what he's done, but Flair's always been fair. Everybody knows how fair Rick Flair's been. And if you can't be fair to Flair, who can Flair be Flair fair to? So if you're fair to him, there's no reason why you shouldn't be fair to him. He's fair to you. I always said Rick Flair's the kind of a man I say, be fair to Flair. If Flair can't be fair to you, why should he be fair to Flair? But Flair is fair to you, so you should be fair to Rick Flair. Wouldn't you say so? I mean, be fair. Makes sense to me. You make good sense. I can't disagree with you. So much for our emotional moment here on Monday Nitro, but let the footage speak for itself. Yeah, just be fair. I... Can't argue with that. Can you? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. John is calling from Maryland. Hello, John. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for allowing me to be on your television show. I can speak to you for so many different topics that you've spoken to, but the original issue I called was we spoke about public schools and private schools. Um, my son was very involved in Navy youth hockey at, at, Nate, at the academy, and he came home one day, public schools, and he said, Dad, can I join a school that's got a real hockey team? So I put him in a Catholic. I'm a, I'm a retired police officer, and my wife's a public teacher, so we're, we're, we're public schools. But he, he is now a commercial pilot. Wow. Great. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, I mean, the public schools, the only way you get ahead in a public school, they said, is if your kid hangs out with the right. Uh, but uh, th- thank you, John. You know, I, um, I don't want to get into a whole education discussion now. I will discuss uh, education a little later. But in terms of schooling, I went to public school my entire academic career until I went to college. My uh, All of my siblings, all three of them, they went to uh, public school their entire academic career until they went to college. My brother is a Ph.D. My other brother has a, a master's degree. My sister is doing very, very well in the private sector. She, she and I are the only ones of our siblings that don't have any postgraduate degree. So... I think a lot of what the public school experience does is what you make of it. It's what you make of it. It's what your parents make of it. I think it's very possible to uh, get a great education in the public school system. And, in you know, obviously my frame of reference is New York, but I'm sure that it's true in other cities as well. We have some of the best public schools in America in, in New York. Right. So, I mean, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn uh, Tech, that my dad went to, my brother went to, uh, our owner, John Katzenmatidis, went to. 
the education that people at Brooklyn Tech got is really unparalleled. And that's a total public education, if you can get in. Same thing at Stuyvesant. Same thing at Staten Island Tech. Same thing at Bronx High School of Science. So the question to me is, why aren't there more schools like Brooklyn Tech and Stuyvesant? More great public schools that give people not a good education, but a great education. That's the question. And I think once we get there... A lot of this uh, falls into place. But and look, and a lot of this, and it sounds like you and your wife, John, did a great job with your son. But a lot of goes into parents. And there's got to be parental involvement in what, in what the schools are uh, doing. And if you want your child to be motivated, if you make clear that uh, you have certain expectations about how hard he or she is going to work, I think there's a pretty good chance that they will work that hard. 800-848-9222, The great Jersey June calling from New Jersey. Hello, June. Where have you been? Hi, Frank. I'm I'm up listening, always listening. Um, I just wanted to tell you my mom's family came from England on a ship, and they were all inspected at Ellis Island. Um, My aunt was turned down because she had a vitamin D deficiency, (laughs) which she had to correct. Wow. Um, And my mom was required to pass a civics exam. Uh, Eventually, I don't know how much time they gave them, and she got a diploma. They gave them a little diploma, which she framed and hung in her hallway. I was very proud to be an American and always wore flags and had flags all over her apartment. <laughs> well, that's wonderful, uh, June. Yeah, but, uh, don't misunderstand me, and thank you for the call. I am not at all anti-immigration. I don't think there's anything wrong with increasing ele- excuse me, legal immigration and making the process for legal immigration a little bit, uh, a little bit easier so that it doesn't cost a fortune to become an American citizen and take three years, and at the same time, Crack down on people that come in illegally. Now, the asylum seekers are in a little bit of a different position because they're they're not um, going through the same process that a legal immigrant would. They're also not necessarily trying to break in to the country like an illegal immigrant would. If they're a legitimate asylum seeker, then, you know, they have a claim. Right. And that's always been the case under international law. The question is. How do you know these folks are legitimate asylum seekers and why are they coming here? And that's one of the things the Biden administration is doing is they're mimicking that Trump era policy that you have to request asylum in the first country that you get to, which for a lot of these folks is Mexico. And that's going to require the uh, that's going to require the cooperation of the Mexican government. My grandfather, who I was very close to, was an immigrant. Uh, from Italy, came here in his, I guess, late 20s. And the ship he came here, believe it or not, on was the Andrea Doria. And I looked that up recently. He, his sister, and his brother came here. They left two siblings, two sisters, I think two. Yeah, they left two sisters in Italy and their families in Italy. And, And the three of them came here to start a new life and wanted to be part of America. They didn't try to take with them the culture of the country that they left. They came here for a reason. So I think that um, 
I want to be very clear. I am not anti-immigration at all. I'm pro-immigration. I just don't think that America can um, solve the world's immigration problems and the world's poverty problems and the world's violence problems. 800-848-9222, We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We were good. We were gone. Kind of dream that can't be so We were right till we weren't Built a home and watched it burn interesting song called Flowers by Miley Cyrus. I heard this song for the first time on Holy Thursday when my cousin-in-law Annie sang this at uh, Holy Thursday Karaoke in Chinatown. And she did a great job. She's got a great voice, Annie. And it's Miley Cyrus, who I'm a fan of, but I'm not a huge fan of her music. She has some songs that I like. I'll tell you, this song is relatively new. It's just a few months old. This is terrific. It's kind of like a pop song, but it's got a little bit of disco to it, a little bit of funk to it. And um, a lot of musical critics really complimented Miley Cyrus's vocal delivery. It's sturdy. It's hummable. It's catchy. But... There are very few bells and whistles. You don't have someone with an ultra-processed voice. I think this is a really wonderful song. I think the lyrics are great. I I think it's catchy. I think it's uh, really, really terrific. And it's a good karaoke song, I must say. I didn't want to leave you. I didn't want to fight. Started to cry, but then remembered I. By the way, broke a whole bunch of records. This song um, broke the records, all sorts of records on the streaming service Spotify during its first full seven days when it was released in January. The song earned ninety six thousand thirty two. Th- excuse me, ninety six million thirty two thousand six hundred and twenty four. Plays on Spotify. I mean, that's incredible. That's more people than listen to my podcast. So um, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, uh, just join the Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Just search that on Facebook, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And that's also meant to be a discussion group 
about the things that we talk about on the show, the different subjects that we cover. If you have feedback about things that we're doing on the show, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, that's a great place to do. It's also a great place to interact with um, other fans of the show. A lot of people posted very nice Mother's Day messages in there to my wife and my mother. I hope everyone had a great Mother's Day. And in our area, we had some beautiful weather. So there was no need for a backup plan. My wife, who was celebrating her second Mother's Day, her desire was to go for a picnic. Last year, she wanted to do the same thing. We couldn't do it because it was super. It was very windy last year. I mean, we tried, but it didn't, was not fun. This year, it was perfect picnic weather. So that's what we did. We went to the park, had a picnic out there. And then uh, there's a playground right by there, and we went and played with Carmine in the playground a little bit, which he got a big kick out of. My mom came and uh, and joined us, and it was uh, wonderful to have lunch in the park in, in the picnic-style setting with uh, my mom and uh, my wife, who's a terrific mother in her own right. I'll tell you what was really nice. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say this because maybe there's people that would get jealous that this wasn't done for them. I don't know what the story is. But yesterday, Saturday, I should say, Saturday, some beautiful flowers arrive at our house. And as they're coming, my wife sees this beautiful floral arrangement coming to our house. And she says to me, are these from you? And I said, no. They weren't. I wish they were. They were very, very breathtaking. She opens the card. They're from the owners of our radio station, John and Margot Katzmatidis, saying, Happy Mother's Day, Rachel. And that was really so thoughtful and so nice. See, last year was her first Mother's Day, and there's always a lot of people that remember you for your first Mother's Day and will send you flowers or a card. To really remember someone's second Mother's Day uh, I mean, that's really extraordinary. And so we, we were very touched by that. And that's the kind of people that uh, that we work for. We're lucky enough to work for. So that was really nice. All right. 800-848-9222. Going to try and get to as many calls as we can here. Keith Ablo coming up in a minute. Not a minute, but a little later in the show. A, a wacky, somewhat, McDonald's lawsuit that I'm going to tell you about at the uh, at the top of next hour. I'll tell you the the other thing. We came home. Um, well, we were at the we were at the park, and my wife has been trying to trap this cat in our neighborhood. See, I never knew this stuff, but apparently, do you know how you can tell if a cat is fixed or not? Matt Blaze, any idea how you can tell if a cat is fixed, like a stray cat? No, I have no idea. Kenneth, any idea? No. I'm okay, not too so sure. this is very important. So I would not have known, but for my wife either. So you can tell if a cat is spayed or neutered if their ear is tipped. They tip the ear so that you can, whoever does the procedure, tips the ear so that if you come across a stray cat and you see that the ear is tipped, you know that they're fixed. So if the ear is not tipped, you have to try and get them fixed. So there's this gray cat that my wife has been trying to trap in our neighborhood. She sets up a tra- she feeds all these neighborhood cats and she sets up this trap outside of our house and she has been trying for days to get this stray cat. 
But she only likes to usually do it when we're home because if we're out and about, she doesn't want the cat languishing in the trap for a long time. So she hasn't been able to trap this cat to get it fixed. So we're at the park, and my Uncle Steve, who was supposed to meet us, calls me. And apparently he came to the park just as my mother was leaving, and then there was some confusion, and he uh, did not, uh, my mother didn't stop to say hello to him, and so he's got me on the phone, but he brought a plant for my wife. So he lives in my neighborhood. So he drops off the plant on our front porch, and he said, you know, you got a cat in a trap in front of your garage. So immediately we left the park so that we wouldn't have the cat standing out there in front. So now he's in our garage, he's being well-fed, and we're, well, Rachel is waiting for an appointment with a veterinarian, hopefully in the next day or so, to get him fixed. But that was the that was the adventure in our house today, is that my wife, on Mother's Day, finally trapped this cat that she's been trying to catch for days, and uh, hopefully we'll get him spayed tomorrow. Or get uh, get him fixed tomorrow. 800-848-9222 if you would like to comment. Let me say hello to Dave in Las Vegas. Hello, Dave. Hello. Uh, just call your local township and ask about a TNR, uh, trap, neuter, and release. I'm sure they'll be very happy to pick up the cat. Yeah, we're, and, uh, we're on top of it, Dave. We're on top. Okay, no yeah. problem. Um, as, as we all remember our first jobs, and they were not the greatest things and generally, it might be um, fast food or retail or something like that. Those jobs, especially like in New York, you're going to lose all of those jobs. And the reason I bring it up is how about the established teenagers and senior citizens that would be looking for these jobs? Well, I agree with you, Dave. Uh, look, uh, thank you very much for the call. I, I have said this. You, you know, what, for all the criticism of Alan Keyes, and I know he said a lot of wacky things, but one of the things that Alan Keyes said when he was running for president in either 2000 or 2008, he said, if you want to know who is going to be really hurt most by immigration, it's black people. Because a lot of the jobs that black folks have, whether it's in construction, whether it's in other uh, other areas, they're going to be priced out by an illegal immigrant that's willing to work for less. Now, again... Not all these asylum seekers are illegal immigrants, but figure many of them come into the country the same way. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. I concur with you to say that we're not here to uh, solve the world's ills, economic problems, or bring people in. Uh, You know, originally, when you look at the border wall, which Joe Biden X'd on the first day. The border wall was our Ellis Island. I wish they never decommissioned Ellis Island. The border wall people could run through now. Ellis Island, they dropped you off on Ireland. They interviewed you mentally, physically. They wanted to know if you had a career. My grandfather, a butcher, came over here but couldn't get a job at it. He worked for the Works Project Administration. Our Aunt Anna sponsored them. And, and Joe, when, when, when you look at it, um, I call him Lion Biden, and I don't understand people that don't know. And I go off fact-based journalism, which WABC works on, and that's why I love the program. Um, I look at it. You have, you know, in video, audio, Biden say one thing, then the other thing. And the bubbleheads that watch the news, 
Uh, I have someone in my family, so I, I can't talk politics with them. He's lying. They had an agenda from day one. When he started writing these presidential things, canceling the border, all these other things that Donald Trump had in place to make our country good, we're not letting people in who are going to make our country good. We're letting people in that are going to dilute our conservative base. And I do believe there is an agenda, and Biden, Mayorkas, um, our borders are. Kamala Harris, who I don't even know what she does now in politics. I have no idea. Um, we're we're not adding to the melting pot. We're we're adding to like the sewage. We're bringing bad things in here. Yeah, even Dominic Carter. You know. They yeah, were Eddie. That thank you. I want to try and get forward. to some other people. You know, I um, I want to be careful that we don't uh, that we don't paint with too broad a brush when you use terms like bringing the sewage here. I I don't know that that's true. I think, you know, I've I've been reading a lot of these stories because I think the the temptation to when you see what these cities are going through in terms of expense and and everything else, logistical difficulties in housing these migrants, etc. The temptation is to say, "Oh, these are a bunch of losers that are just costing us all a lot of money." And so I think it's important to keep in mind that these are people and a lot of them are coming here for the same reason that my grandfather came here to create a better life. I understand that. I completely get it. That being said, there are several billion people on this earth and there's a finite amount of space in this country and in our cities and a finite amount of money in this country. So I don't think we can just not have any rules. And your point about Ellis Island is, I think, a good one in that that was a time where there was an administrative infrastructure in place. Now what we're seeing is just it's chaos. And the the administrative structure that is in place in terms of processing these folks is totally overwhelmed. As I said, there are people that don't have a court date in terms of asylum until 2035, which is essentially means that it's meaningless. So I think there's a lot of things to figure out, but uh, I think there are, let's assume 90% of these folks are great people. That still leaves thousands that aren't. That leaves a thousand a day, potentially, that aren't. Yesterday I heard there was an Afghan national that came uh, came in through the southern border. You better be careful. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. just so wandering the hallways it's not that unusual it's unusual that he's awake at this time uh, and not sleeping in one of the studios uh, Curtis Sliwa my uh, colleague who's kind enough to fill in for me when I'm off sort of a legendary <laughs> crime fighter and the head of the Guardian Angels and it's funny because I saw him 
And, at, you know, they have cardboard cutouts of a lot of the hosts and a lot of the people here. Not me, for some reason, but a lot of the other people. And at first, I saw this giant red statue that I thought was just a cardboard cutout. And then he starts talking. I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's the real Curtis Sleewood. You know, because you're kind of just walking by quickly, and then you see it out of the corner of your eye. You think it's the cardboard cutout, and then all of a sudden it's the real Curtis Lee. do not. So anyway, I had the um, dubious misfortune of going into the restroom right after Curtis. Boy, and I've done this before, boy, oh boy, is that an experience. And look, you know, Curtis has been through a lot medically and a lot of other things, I realize he's got a complicated situation down there. I'm not judging it. But it is a difficult place to be in afterwards. It stinks in here. And I was thinking, you know, we there's this great stuff that my wife and my sister-in-law, Sharon, happy, happy uh, Mother's Day to Sharon and uh, her first Mother's Day as a mom. I know this was a big day for her. That there's this stuff called poo-pourri. And they're not an advertiser. I'm not I'm not getting any money or anything. But it's really good. And basically, you spray it in the toilet bowl as a prophylactic measure, and then you do your business, and it doesn't smell. So I was thinking, as I was urinating just now, I said, uh, well, maybe I should bring a, a, a bit of this poo-pourri in here and just keep it in here so that people know to use it before they do their business. And then I thought, wait a minute. People are not supposed to be doing number two in here anyway. So by putting poopery in here, am I in some way what doing what economists might call creating a moral hazard by kind of sh- giving my tacit approval or the bathroom's tacit approval that it, this is a place where you can do that sort of thing? It's sort of like the argument over uh, needle exchange facilities. Do we set up these needle exchange facilities so that addicts who are shooting up intravenous drugs can use their needles safely, or do we not do it? So that's sort of what I'm dealing with. I'm not comparing Curtis to an intravenous drug user, but if the shoe fits. They both seem to be perpetually missing more and more teeth. I'll say that. Uh, Now, the thing with Curtis... You can say whatever you want about him as a crime fighter. Some people would call him a crime fighter in quotation marks. You could say whatever you want about him as a radio person. One of the things, and I'm not joking here, one of the things that Curtis has done best in his life was he was an exemplary manager of a McDonald's. This is God's honest truth. He was a night manager at a McDonald's, I believe, on Fordham Road in the Bronx. And this is in the 1970s when it was a tough time to be working nights in that area of the Bronx. And he was great. By all accounts, I've met people that he worked with in those days, and they said he was terrific. And then he managed to find a, a, a he managed to start a crime-fighting group and a sanitation group while he was working at the at the McDonald's. And I should have asked him about this, but we didn't, we only had about a minute. The, you remember the hot coffee case with McDonald's where a woman burned herself with hot coffee from McDonald's and 
She ends up suing over it. There's actually a fascinating documentary about it. And the case was not as frivolous as it seemed. I'll just say that. Uh, The documentary is called Hot Coffee. And it deals not just with that case, but some, some other issues related to torts and attempts at tort reform in general. I do recommend it. Well, let me tell you what happened with a McDonald's in, uh, I believe it's uh, Pennsylvania. So the, maybe, uh, no, it's in Florida, excuse me. Apologize to the Pennsylvanians. So did you ever go to McDonald's when you were a child? My grandmother used to take me once in a while. It really is, I know they've made some modest improvements to the health of the menu. It really is such garbage. I mean, I am hoping, and I don't know if we'll be able to avoid this because children have birthday parties or whatever. I am hoping that we will not take our son to McDonald's ever. And so far we haven't. But he does like chicken nuggets, so whatever. So, and my grandmother used to take me, and what do you get for a kid? You get a Happy Meal. It's really, it's great. There's a, at least when I got it, I don't know what the story is now, there was a toy in there. And it's it's fun. It's small. It's fun. It's happy. It's an easy thing for parents that need a quick meal. That's why they go go there. So a mom takes her four-year-old girl to a McDonald's drive-thru. She orders a Happy Meal. Happy Meal with Chicken McNuggets. So the one of the Chicken McNuggets falls... Out of the Happy Meal and burns this four-year-old girl, apparently pretty severely, causing second-degree burns. The parents, well, the mother, I guess. I don't know if the father is in the picture here. The mother sues. Sues McDonald's and um, the franchisee, Upchurch foods. So what would you do in that instance? If you were on that jury and the circumstances are exactly what I described to you, where they purchase this happy meal with chicken McNuggets, the chicken one of the chicken McNuggets falls out of the bag, burns a four year old, causing second degree burns, what would you do? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'll tell you what happened. On Thursday, 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you're on this jury. How are you voting? I would have to say I'm in voting in favor of McDonald's. How come? Because it was the parent who should have been supervising and should have known how hot the chicken nuggets were and how hot were they. I think you got to find out that, that in the same case with the coffee spill, they find out how hot was the coffee. It shouldn't be as hot as it is. I mean, you're frying chicken McNuggets in oil. Taking them out, it's going to be hot. But I would think the parent's going to feed the kid. Right. So you'd know how hot it is. And who 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 dropped the McNuggets on the kid in the first place? Did the kid drop them by themselves? That, that's the way it seems to me. Obviously, I didn't hear the testimony. Right. But... Um, but that's the way it seems to me. So uh, one listener who sent me one of the articles that I read on this case said the mother, and this is just a listener, you know, he doesn't have it or she doesn't have any inside information necessarily. 
The mother handed the girl the bagged food at the drive-thru because she was an idiot. So, let me tell you what the jury found on Thursday. Kenneth, how are you voting on this case? In favor of McDonald's. McDonald's, both of you. Okay. Especially now that the drive-thru, which means they were in the car when she handed That's her the That's my bag? understanding. That's my understanding. McDonald's on Thursday was found liable for uh, for this hot chicken McNugget falling from this Happy Meal and burning this four-year-old. Well, now the company, as well as the owner of this franchise, Upchurch Foods, they are waiting to hear how much they will need to pay to the child and her mother. There's going to be now a separate trial for damages, a damages phase where they're going to present evidence and we'll see what, what they get. This is going to be a second jury now. So McDonald's is hoping this jury has more Matt Blazes and more Kenneths on it than were on the first one. The second jury is going to determine how much McDonald's and its owner are going to have to pay. The jury found Upchurch Foods, that's the owner of this franchise, liable for negligence and failure to warn customers about the risks of hot food. And I'll tell you, when I saw that, that that's what the jury found, I'm thinking to myself, all right. Now, the case of the hot coffee was different because that woman who spilled that coffee uh, on her, um, first of all, the lid was deficient. The coffee was unreasonably hot. That woman needed to get skin grafts, okay? Uh, I mean, that was a serious situation. But don't you know the risks of eating hot food or giving them to your child? I mean, what culpability, what responsibility do the parents have? So the jury found Upchurch um, liable for negligence and failure to warn customers about the risk of hot food, and they found McDonald's liable for failing to provide instructions for how to handle the food safely. What? Is McDonald's really? I mean, I guess they are. McDonald's was found, was not found negligent, by the way, and the jury dismissed the claim that McNuggets are defective. So uh, McDonald's put out a statement that says this was an unfortunate incident Our customers, uh, but we respectfully disagree with the verdict. Our customers should continue to rely on McDonald's to follow policies and procedures for serving chicken McNuggets safely. So Falana Holmes is the mom. She testified that she bought her son and daughter Happy Meals at a McDonald's drive-thru, handed the food to her, her children who were in the back seat. Now, look, I could see this as the parent of a small child. I can see myself doing this. You kind of think that what you're going to hand them is going to be safe, but you usually double check. Before we hand Carmine a snack, my wife or or me, we'll usually, we'll taste it to make sure it's okay and nothing wrong with it, and then we'll hand it to him. So I I can kind of understand what frame of mind she was in. So she handed the food to her children who were in the back seat. After she drove away, her daughter started screaming. That's what she testified. The mother said when she pulled over, she saw a burn on her daughter's leg and took photos of the injury with her iPhone. Holmes even took audio clips of her daughter screaming, which were played for the jury in court. See, that's tough. That's the kind of thing. I can't take a child um, screaming 
And I probably, I might have been persuaded, but I just, I just wonder how much of this is the restaurant's fault and how much is the parents' fault? Here's Falana Holmes on NBC6 South Florida talking about the scalding of her four-year-old daughter. Just thankful that um, Olivia's voice was heard um, through great lawyers. And I'm, I'm glad McDonald's now has to acknowledge there's, there's a warning that needs to be put out there. Just thankful. Here is um, Terry Austin a legal analyst and former trial attorney on Law and Crime Network. That's an online legal network. He, Terry Austin explained the failure to warn and talked about what the family might end up getting in terms of damages. Well, failure to warn is a type of products liability case, and it's exactly what it sounds like when the manufacturer of that product doesn't tell the customer what they should do to take precautions. So you usually see it in cases for electronics, but here the product is the coffee, and the, here the product is that actual chicken McNugget. So they should have worn in the prior case and in this case. Now, if in fact they lose this case, the plaintiff could be entitled to economic and non-economic damages. So anything from medical costs and anything from lost wages, that would include the economic damages. And the non-economic damages would include like pain and suffering. And it would count for the pain of the family, including that child who apparently is very aware of that scar from that nugget. All right. What would you do if you were on this jury? And let's say you're on the second jury. What are you giving? In, obviously, compensatory damages, we'll see what they have in terms of lost wages or medical bills, things like that. But what about punitive damages? What would you see, just to give you some frame of reference, in that coffee case, that hot coffee case, the woman in that case was awarded $160,000 in compensatory damages and $2.7 million in punitive damages. So they wanted to send a message to McDonald's. And McDonald's did make some changes to uh, the, the way they prepared coffee as a result of that. But part of what they're asking for here, the the Holmes family, they're asking for a warning on the Chicken McNuggets. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm a father of a small child, and I just, I can't, I hate to think of a little child hurt or suffering in any way. Um, but are we really in a place where we're go- we're actually saying that hot chicken McNuggets need a warning, like it's a cigarette? I mean, it strikes me as a little silly. And you know, one time when Carmine first started to crawl, and I still get traumatized thinking about this. I was I was making something in oil, and he crawled over suddenly to to the bottom of my feet. And I flipped, I think it was a veggie burger or something. I flipped what I was cooking and some oil splattered onto his face and he screamed, he cried. And I ran to the bathtub to wash the oil out, but he had some burns on his face because of the oil that I flipped too close to him. And I am still traumatized by that experience. But you know whose fault it was? It wasn't the oil's fault. Oil's supposed to be hot to prepare food. Now, maybe I used too much oil, but that's my fault. And you shouldn't be flipping food right next to a child. So I didn't really think 
of suing the maker of the stove or the maker of the oil, or the maker of the spatula or the maker of the veggie burger, I recognized, and thankfully he was fine, you know, as no lingering effects at all. I recognized that this was all my fault. And I'm not, I, I feel terrible for this little girl to get burned. But I kind of think the responsibility lies with the parent here. Not with McDonald's. And look, I don't go to McDonald's. I don't particularly like McDonald's. I have no interest in defending McDonald's. But this strikes me as a bit of a reach. And I don't think that, I think if I were on this jury, I would have voted with Kenneth and Matt Blaze. Don't you think the logic is kind of like, you should sue the oil company for not telling you the right amount of oil to put in the right. pan. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous. If you go by that logic, yeah, it's, right? it's stupid. Now, um, the attorneys for McDonald's agreed that the nugget caused the burns. There's no dispute about that. The nugget caused the burns. They said that the food needs to be hot in order to prevent salmonella, salmonella poisoning, which is a very creative Defense, I must say. They said the food needs to be hot in order to prevent salmonella poisoning, and Chicken McNuggets are not supposed to be pressed between a seat belt and human flesh. So I guess that's what happened. The Chicken McNugget got loose and the was between the seat belt and the little girl's skin. So I'd love to hear from you if you disagree, because I am not unsympathetic as a parent and as someone... You know, I I have always been against these calls for tort reform because I think if someone's hurt and it's a result of real company negligence or corporate uh, abuse of some sort, that company or that business or that person should pay through the nose. I'm not sure this fits that bill. This strikes me as I hate to I hate to say this. Look, I'm sure the mom was as upset as I was when when Carmine got burned with the oil. But this strikes me as a family looking to make money from their child's injury. And I'm not sure I would I would not have voted with the with the jury. What do you say? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Hey, Frank. First thing, I've been eating at McDonald's all my life. I never had a hot chicken McNugget. So I don't know where that uh, where that McDonald's was, but that food is never hot. I mean, the coffee's hot, but that, that's that's about where it, where it ends. And by the time you get it in the car, it's, it's warm at best. And All right. Well, yeah. I guess maybe you need to go to the McDonald's in Florida, Neil. I guess so. You know, Frank, you could put as many warnings on, on the bags, on the containers. It doesn't mean anything. The little girl can't read it. It's the parents and the mother who handed it to her. She should have read it. Or she should know better. And she shouldn't have to tell her. She should know if it's hot or not to give it to the kid. The mother, the mother was just negligent, and I don't think the McDonald's is negligent at all. But on the other hand, if you want to look about liability, Frank, listen, I'm up all night listening to your show. <laughs> now, if I, now, in the, uh, seriously, Frank, in the morning, sometimes I got to go to a doctor's appointment, and I drive. Mm. I'm falling asleep. 
so I mean, where's, where's, the, where's your disclaimer, Frank, that your show could cause an accident for me? You know, um, that's a great point, Neil. Matt, can we talk to management about getting a disclaimer, a warning that this show could uh, should ca- cause some people to uh, have a situation with sleep? Neil, thank you for that. We're going to get right on that. I don't want to get sued. Uh, I don't want to have a situation where people are unable to function the next day because of me. You don't drive or operate heavy machinery right. while, after listening to the show or exactly. while listening. Exactly. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. Two open lines if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We, we don't have to worry about nothing. Cause we got the fire and we burn in one hell of a something. They... This is Burn by British pop icon Ellie Goulding. Is it Goulding or Golding? Goulding. Like Elliot Gould? Or you guys don't know either? I think it's Goulding. Goulding. Okay, great. Great. Well, she's terrific. Um, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this McDonald's lawsuit or anything else. I did have to mention this uh, because I think it's so interesting. So there's a rover on Mars, the NASA's Perseverance rover. And it looks like they have discovered evidence from this NASA Perseverance Mars rover that ancient Mars may have had its share of raging rivers. And there are a lot of signs that liquid water flowed on the red planet long ago. But most of the evidence points to lakes, oceans, or even some gentle streams, such as the ancient creeks uncovered by NASA's Curiosity rover in Mars's huge Gale Crater. I'm going to get into this with um, Dr. Sky when he's on the program on Wednesday That is a a program you are not going to want to miss, believe me. But um, I found this just really incredibly interesting. Incredibly interesting. And you just wonder what happens to planets. I mean, in looking at what we're seeing on Earth now, 
excuse me, on Mars now, are we seeing Earth's future? Because when you have Perseverance, which has been exploring a Mars crater called Jezero, it's rolled up this long dead riverbed that looks completely different from what Curiosity had seen earlier. This one, the one that Perseverance just discovered, features coarse grains and cobbles, bulky stuff that couldn't be displaced by just a trickle. So that indicates a high-energy river that's trucking and carrying lots of debris. So how did Mars go from being teeming with water and life to now being what it is now? And is that what Earth is going to look like in 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 20,000 years? One wonders. I certainly do. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we are talking about, including this McDonald's lawsuit. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hey, Frank. Well, congratulations on Rachel catching that cat. Yeah, she was happy. It put her in a good mood, which by extension put our whole household in a good mood. Yes, I trap and neuter all the time in this neighborhood. And I got one cat I've been trying to get for six and a half years. Wow. This cat made, yeah, he made over 60 cats, you know, kittens in this neighborhood in the time he was here before I caught him. What's well, tremendous. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, they multiply so much. And besides trap and neuter and, and return, maybe people could try keeping some of these cats. Some of them were abandoned pets, and other ones that were feral, born outside here, they turned out to be very nice pets for me. Nine out of ten. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, you you know, each cat you got to judge on its own case. We're doing our part. We have three, so uh, we're not taking any more. Don't give my wife any ideas if she's listening now. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So I went to the doctors for the first time in four years on uh, on Saturday. Now, for a checkup for the first time in four years. I've been to the doctor but it's usually when I have something, right? If I, I have a sore throat or I have a uh, whatever, I'll just go to an urgent care. And then if they need to give me a referral to somewhere, they'll do that. But I haven't really been for a checkup in four years because, you know, honestly, I feel very good. But my wife's been urging me. She says, you know, you see all these instances of people that don't go to the doctor and then there's something wrong. Just go get a physical, get yourself checked out. So I went and made an appointment, made it a month and a half in advance. And I go in Saturday morning after having breakfast. I um, talked about this on a podcast, uh, not a podcast, but on a video that I made on Facebook, which you could watch in its entirety, facebook.com slash Moranofan. But I get there and, they, you know, we go through, they take my blood pressure, they, take, they do uh, an EKG, that's all fine. They, um, you know, look around and everything seems fine. And they say, all right, we're going to take some blood from you, okay? We'll do some blood work. Great, fine, good. And then they said, okay, did you have anything to eat today? Yeah, my wife and I had breakfast earlier. And they said, oh, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to eat when you give blood. It has to be a fasting, fasting blood test. And so now I have to go back next Saturday, early in the morning, 
to give blood and make a second trip. Now, again, it's not the biggest deal in the world, and I'm not going to go on and on about it. But I can't help but think that they gave me this appointment a month and a half ago. Wouldn't you think they would have told me, hey, we're going to take blood from you. Don't eat that morning. Or uh, maybe call the day before to confirm my appointment and say, hey, by the way, if you're planning on giving blood tomorrow so that we can do blood work, don't eat in the morning. Don't have breakfast. And I wouldn't have. But so now it's not only another trip for me, but it's a waste of their time also when all this could have been handled if they had just simply told me, don't eat before you come. I don't get it. I don't get it. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. Hello, Alex. Uh, yeah, I just uh, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to uh, comment on the uh, earlier comments about immigration. Sure. Uh, I think we should welcome immigrants, but we should limit the number uh, to an extent that they can actually assimilate into Western culture. So we have too many, and they have like critical masses of them where they don't assimilate. Then I think that in the long run, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, Alex. You know, right now we have, thanks for the call, we have the worst of both worlds when it comes to immigration, is we have a system where if you're coming here and playing by the rules, the system is cumbersome, expensive, lengthy, and burdensome. And we have a system that seems totally unprepared to handle the influx of people that are willing to not come and play by the rules. And you know what? You know who some of the people most affected by this are and most hurt by this and most victimized? A lot of them are the illegal immigrants that are coming here and being the victims of human trafficking. Some people die trying to get here. Wouldn't it be better if we had a sound, safer process in place? I certainly think it would. 800-848-9222. Richie is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Richie. Uh, Good morning, Frank. Um, I disagree with your characterization of the Biden administration's immigration policy as a failure. The concept of failure is that the actual results are not the intended results. I think the actual results are absolutely the intended results. All right. Why do you think that? Well, um, because since the uh, Biden administration, not the Biden, the Obama administration, the Democratic Party has become not a political competitor, but a political enemy. Well, I mean, you you know that Obama deported 409,000 people in 2012 alone, right? I mean, Trump actually deported fewer immigrants in his first year in office than Obama did. Obama had deported more people than George W. Bush did. So I I don't agree with that. Also, Richie, I I could buy what you're saying because, and thanks for the call, because I do think many Democrats view immigration, both legal and illegal, as a source of votes. I think a lot of Republicans and a lot of business leaders view it as a source of cheap labor. And I think a a lot of Democrats view it and a lot of social conservatives view it as a way to keep churches in business, especially Catholic churches that are having a tough time filling the pews. And I think a lot of Democrats view it as a source of vote. So 
the de facto nature is nothing gets done because you have conservatives who don't want to do anything because they get the chief labor and they get the Catholics. And you have Democrats that don't want to do anything because they get the vote. I think I so I could buy what you're saying. That being said, I think Biden wants to win re-election. And there is no state that is having a tougher time with this right now than Arizona. There are four states that will decide the next presidential election. Arizona is one. And I think Biden knows that if he's not at least looking like he's trying to solve this problem, he can kiss Arizona goodbye. So I um, I think just purely for political reasons, he would like to get this situation under control, which is one of the reasons I think he's implementing some of these Trump-era policies now. Not the wall, but a lot of the others. So I think uh, I, I disagree with your sort of conspiracy theory there. But hey, it's late night radio. If uh, conspiracy theories aren't welcome here, I don't know where they are. Okay. 800-848-9222. Mike tweeting at me, was on hold for Frank Morano, seemed okay, then got booted and dropped. Either it's cancel culture or their switchboard isn't working. It's a good thing it distracts me from my podcasts and resurrecting an old blog six I found. Digital options. Cool. Well, Mike, I'm sorry about that. Feel free to call back if you got disconnected. 800-848-9222. We have six uh, open lines now, and you're you're welcome to one of them if you got uh, disconnected. So sorry about that. All right. Uh, we are on Twitter, at Frank Morano. You can find me, uh, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fan. I've been trying to produce more of these Facebook videos, which people seem to really enjoy. And uh, a lot of people have been sharing them and things of that nature. So, all right, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Heading up to San Francisco For the Labor Day weekend show I got my hush puppies on I guess I never was meant for glitter rock and roll And honey, I didn't know That I'd be missing you so Come Monday, it'll be all Jimmy Buffett, come Monday. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. In any event, so I keep these nocturnal hours during the week, but on the weekend, I try to go back to something more like a normal schedule, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Friday night, I could not... I could not bring myself to sleep. I couldn't. So I ended up staying up late. I went to my friends and then came home around 1030 
And I stayed up. I couldn't, I wasn't the least bit tired. And I know this is frustrating to my wife because she just wants me to come up to bed and go to sleep with her like normal couples do. And we only have really two days where we can do that, Friday and Saturday. And it's frustrating that the one day we're not doing that, the one day that I can do this, I'm staying up. But uh, it's very difficult for me to just lie in bed wide awake. So I'll come downstairs. I'll go to my office. I'll listen to the radio. I'll, you know, catch up on some email. I'll read. I'll write something, catch up on some correspondence. And ultimately, I'm doing all that stuff on Friday night. One, two, three o'clock in the morning, and I am still wide awake. And uh, I said, you know what? All right, let me watch one of these A&E legends, uh, these A&E biography documentaries on the WWE Legends series. And because some of them have been very good, some of them have been okay. And so I end up watching the episode they did on Jake the Snake Roberts. Now, I was a big fan of Jake the Snake Roberts as a wrestler. He was a huge wrestler in really the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and maybe even a little bit into the 2000s on the independent circuit. Now he works for AEW. And I had I, I, I know a lot about Jake the Snake Roberts because there's been documentaries made about him. He's been featured in other documentaries. There's been a lot written about him. He's had sort of a legendary battle with, with drugs, with alcohol, and he was such a great wrestler. He's one of the best-known wrestlers, I would say, of the 80s and 90s. And it, it, this is kind of a typical Jake the Snake Roberts promo that you would hear before a match that he would engage in. Don't you realize, up into a steamboat, they were all open-hand material, just little boys to play with. Uh, up. Jake Roberts, let me ask you this. I agree with you. Ricky, the Dragon Steamboat was the uh, toughest competition you faced here in the World Wrestling Federation. But that was the moment you chose to come up from behind before the match started. Perhaps you were afraid of meeting any real afraid. competition face-to-face. You're saying that I'm afraid? I'm asking the you question. You know something? Sometimes it's better to remain quiet and be thought a fool than it is to speak up and erase all doubt. And Steamboat, you made a mistake by turning your back on me because I don't play no games. I don't have to play games. I don't have to watch games because I can control this sport. With one move, DDT. DDT. You've seen what Steamboat looks like, black guys, everything, head swelling up, looks like the elephant man. Because you administered it to him on the concrete It doesn't matter. The bottom line in this sport is winners and losers. I never have been a loser. Now, there was something about Jake the Snake, whether he was a good guy, what they call a, a face or a baby face, or a bad guy, what they call a heel. He was so scary. And intimidating, even though, you know, he he was tall, but he didn't have the kind of physical conditioning that a guy like Hulk Hogan or uh, the Ultimate Warrior might have. The guy, you know, if you just looked at his physique, you'd say, all right, it's a big, tall guy. He could be a truck driver. So because I knew a lot about Jake Roberts, I said, ah, what am I going to learn from this? Let me tell you something. This documentary is phenomenal, phenomenal. I my measure of what's a good documentary is twofold. One, if I know the subject, am I still going to learn something? I thought I knew about Jake Roberts, 
I knew nothing. This was so informative and so educational. I'm not going to tell you any of the big reveals because it's. I don't want to take anything away from it. And two, my other barometer is if you're not into the subject, like let's say you're not into wrestling, will you still like this documentary? Answer is yes. If you don't care at all about wrestling, you will still enjoy this documentary. And all of a sudden, I was appreciative of the fact that I couldn't sleep. So I, so I could watch this. And it was really well. The, this is the only thing I'll tell you from this documentary because it's really so emotional and so captivating. This is the only thing I'll say. The Jake the Snake Roberts, whose real name is Aurelian Smith Jr., and still, he's in his late 60s now. He's in the poor shape. The guy is still scary. And he's got. He's got that voice that you just, you know, from immediately as soon as he says something, that this is a man that has is not to be trifled with. He was originally going to be an architect. That was his occupational choice. That's what he was going to go to school for. That's what he was going to do. And it's funny. You listen to Jake the Snake now, even as a, as a, a guy that's retired for a long time as a wrestler. And you see and hear a guy that could not have been anything except a professional wrestler. And I'm thinking, like, my goodness, how could this guy have been an architect? There's no way. But I strongly recommend it. If you're a fan of wrestling or a fan of Jake Roberts, you will love this. But even if you're not, you will really like it. It's on A&E, on demand, uh, WWE Legends. I recommend it. Uh, strongly. 800-848-9222. Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi, Frank. I I put on a hurt to talking about that, and it really doesn't make any sense. So I agree with you. This is stupid because if the mother made the food in her own kitchen and gave it to her child, she would make sure before she gave it to her that, you know, that it wasn't going to hurt her. It wouldn't be burning hot, right? You be careful. Right. The restaurant did not give the child or sell the child the food. The mother gave it. They sold it to the mother, and the mother gave it to the child. So it's the same thing. The mother should check it. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I agree with you. She shouldn't be giving a child, four-year-old, you know, food without checking it. Yeah, it could have been really something wrong with it. That's right, ridiculous. right. I I think that's that's good advice for. I mean, when we we've gone to restaurants with Carmine before, and look, obviously he's a little younger than four, but we check his food for not right. only temperature but for the size of it, or is there anything that's going to, or is it too right? spicy? Anything. You know, you got to make sure. Right. That what they're yeah. eating is is safe for uh, on every right. level. Yeah, thank you, Linda. I don't I don't know why. Look, I wasn't in the courtroom. I don't know why the jury reached the decision that it did. But I am with you and these guys here. I would have voted differently. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. Good evening. I had a. I was going to tell you. I used to drink heavily. I drank quite a bit. You know, for many years. And then I started getting a bad pain in my stomach and how many trips I went to the emergency room. And then they'd say, it's an ulcer, it's an ulcer. Mm. And then finally I went, you know, it was bad. I, I went, I was almost on the, I was up pretty much on the ground, scrunched up in a ball just about. 
and then they said it was my pancreas from uh from drinking i really and uh there there's something they can do a blood test to check your pancreatic levels you know then you never know with, with somebody you know i i hear you like to you know i listen quite a bit so i hear you know if you anybody who likes to drink hard liquor it can happen well, and that uh, would be, yeah, uh, thank you, Paul. First of all, I don't drink that much. But two, that's why I, you know, went for a checkup in the first place and um, yeah. made sure, you know, made sure that I got checked out on all those things. And I'm glad you're doing well now. At least yeah. I hope you're doing well now, health-wise. But my point was just that they should have let me know not to eat before I went. That was, that's the entirety of my beef. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Oh, let me mention. Hey, let me take a call here because Melvin has been patiently holding. Melvin is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, Melvin. Greetings. Yes, I agree. That mother was incorrect. She supposed to check it. Why you gonna get hot food to a child for? That common sense is not common. Mm. And and also the educational system. This goes back to 1954, Brown v. Case, because there's nothing new about this. The campaign for physical equity have a lawsuit against the state of New York more than 20 years ago, and the state of New York admitted that they were underfunding the New York City public school system because they did not want to give the money to districts that without failing. Uh, they sold the lawsuit. And the state started to pay off that money to um, further education. Right. I, I followed only, it. I followed it. Yeah. It's, but it's only happening. And when you study the history of public education in the United States, this is only happening in the cities. Because once you leave the city and go out of the countryside, those schools look like college campuses. They're doing that. And also it goes down. Because I sat on the school board. Why should I educate your child to be in competition with my child? I'm not going to do it. I'll educate your child to come work for my child. And the resources is there. It's being wasted. And you look at New York City, New York City has some of the highest paid teachers in the country. None of these schools should be filled because enough resources to go around. <laughs> Melvin, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. You know, it just goes to show you money does not buy results. You want to talk about another thing that New York has some of the highest paid. We have the highest paid state legislators in the country. Can you really say we have the best? Of course not. But it's neither here nor there. I, I did want to mention this. There's a great guy who calls into our show uh, from time to time. His name's Hank in New Jersey. And I've met him in person many times. I've really come to view him as a friend. He's come to New Year's Eve a few times and made uh, fresh mozzarella. He came to a screening I hosted of The Godfather years ago. He, he came to a lot of different radio events that I've done. Usually he comes with his son, Jim, and they take pictures. And they're just, he's a great guy. His son, Jim, is a great guy. And he's always sending, he's got like a, a mail order business that he sells things on eBay, collectibles and everything. And he frequently sends us um, baseball cards for Carmine. He sent me wrestling aficionados, you know, wrestling stuff. You know, he's very just a, a great listener, a nice man, and just a thoughtful guy. And so I know him and I know his son, Jim. And he emailed me. Um, maybe a month or so ago, that his daughter, um, Jennifer, her house burned down. And what happened was they live in Jackson, New Jersey, and their next-door neighbor's house caught fire, and it quickly spread to their house, damaging much of the house. 
and there many irreplaceable items are lost, and they're really having a tough time. And I never do this. And Hank used to be an insurance agent. He told me in his 50-plus years as an insurance agent, he helped many of his clients through various claims of situation. And he apparently her house, his daughter's house, was considered a total loss. Everything they owned is gone. And when she, her husband, and her, their, his, Hank's grandson left the house that morning, little did they realize that what they had on their backs is all they would have. Their insurance company is going to help make them whole again, but the process is very slow and is taking time. The first two weeks after this fire, they stayed at Hank's other son and with various neighbors. They rented a home in Jackson, and they're settling in there, and um, they're, they're really having a tough time replacing a lot of these items. So they, they're doing a, a GoFundMe for the Klein family. And what made me think of this is yesterday there was a, a poster for a missing cat. And Rachel says, can you imagine what that must be like to not only have your house go on fire, but to have your pets run out because she's been on the lookout for this missing cat in her neighborhood. And I said, you know, by the way, Hank's daughter, her house burned down. And I don't know if there were any pets involved, but she's going through the situation. And Rachel says, you got to find out if there's a GoFundMe. And if there is, you got to mention it on the air. And we have to make a donation, too. So I don't really have a lot of money right now uh, because you know what it's like when you're working class guy and you got to pay for a child and a mortgage and everything. You know, as soon as my paycheck comes, it's out the door. But I'm going to be making a contribution, and Rachel's going to be making a contribution to Hank's daughter um, and their family, the Klein family. So I've just shared it. If you want to make a donation, I'll tell you, Hank's such a nice guy. He's always been very generous with every charity I've ever asked him to support. So if you want to support him, uh, I just linked it on my Facebook page. Uh, Or not him, but his daughter and the Klein family. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Even if you give 10 bucks, 20 bucks, ultimately I think it's going to help if a lot of people do that. I never do this, but I did want to mention this because Hank is not just a listener. He's a good friend. Uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for starting your Monday with me. You've waited. You've waited a whole week. You deserve this. I know so many of you look forward to this. I know this makes Monday palatable for many of you. It's been a week, and now you are entitled to hear this week's... The Other Side of Midnight presents... The following people, places, or entities have done something that is worthy of praise or otherwise commendable. I must begin with Planet Fitness. I love this. I was totally unaware of this until last week, but this is great news. 
Planet Fitness is offering free use of its 2,400 American and Canadian gyms to teenagers age 14 to 19 this summer for the third year in a row. And this program is designed to keep teens active when there's no gym class. This is great. And look, I recognize Planet Fitness is doing this because they want good publicity. Great. I'm giving it to them. If you know someone that's a young person, this is a great way for them to be able to go to a gym for free. This would happen to me. I wish they had this when I was a, a child. You know, when I was well, a teenager. When I was a teenager, I was very into um, weightlifting, actually. And, you know, I actually put a lot of uh, a lot more effort into exercising and trying to be in good shape, especially when you're a junior in high school, senior in high school. And during the summer, you really do, you get a little, you get a little lazy because you're not going to gym every day. And this is a way to stay active. And I think this is great. So if you know a young person, a teenager in your life, tell them about this. I want to commend Shohei Otani. Look, I don't think there's any doubt at this point. If Shohei Otani stays healthy, he will become not only a Hall of Famer, he will probably be the best paid athlete in any sport of all time. I don't think there's any doubt about this. This man, if you're not a baseball fan, there are pitchers and then there are position players. Pitchers, especially now that both leagues have the designated hitter, pitchers don't hit. Shohei Otani is a unicorn. This is a man who's one of the best pitchers in baseball and one of the best hitters in baseball. We have not seen someone like Shohei Otani since Babe Ruth. So he is joined last week, he joined a very exclusive club, becoming the fifth player in the modern era. Modern era means since 1900. For to record 500 hits as a batter and 500 strikeouts as a pitcher. No surprise, the other four are all names you know. Babe Ruth, Walter Johnson, Red Ruffing, Smokey Joe Wood. This is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, Shohei Otani is a once-in-a-generation player. You know... They say that when his contract is up, that Steve Cohen, the owner of the Mets, may make a play for him. I wouldn't be shocked if they gave him $800 million. I mean, I I wouldn't be shocked if Steve Cohen made him a partner owning the Mets. This is, again, as, as long as he stays healthy, this is the kind of athlete that comes along once in a lifetime. G- genuinely. This is just an extraordinary thing to watch. Uh, Shohei Otani, I do commend you. Hey, I want to commend everybody that is a mother. Uh, mothers are some of the hardest working people that I know. They are the some of the smartest people that I know. And they're some of the most caring people that I know. And they seem to have just boundless energy when it comes to taking care of their children. And there are good mothers. There are bad mothers. Most mothers are somewhere in between, but the one thing almost all of them have in common is almost every mother that I know really will do absolutely anything for their child. And uh, I am very blessed 
to be married to a woman who is an incredible mother. I am very blessed to have a mother myself who is a Hall of Famer. And what I what she has done for me over the years is extraordinary. Most caring, generous person I know. I'm also blessed to have a great stepmother and great mother-in-law. So uh, I hope everybody had a great Mother's Day yesterday and that you got, if your mother's still alive, I hope you got to spend it with her. And if not, I hope you spent some time remembering your mom and maybe telling some people some stories about her. I want to commend Prince Asante. He is a student at Siena College who saved the life of a shuttle driver who suddenly stopped breathing. He boarded the bus, and he passed a trainee in the driver's seat who was chatting with her instructor and laughing. And then, a few minutes later, she stopped breathing. And Asante rushed to the front of the shuttle to find the bus driver unconscious behind the wheel. And he said his body went into crisis mode as he checked her pulse, and he didn't feel one. This guy had never done CPR in his life, but he had been, uh, I believe he was trained on this. No, actually, he had not taken formal CPR instruction, but one one of his classes kind of went over the basics of it. So this very poised 25-year-old continued CPR for 10 minutes until EMTs arrived at the scene and transported her to the hospital to be treated for this cardiac episode. And the transportation service credits Prince Asante for providing these life-saving measures. So um, he saved the bus driver's life, according to the EMT. And Asante says he's found a new appreciation for life and is focused on cherishing every moment. Well, that's, that's a great thing for all of us to keep in mind, right? Similarly, I want to commend a 13-year-old boy who saved his sister from being abducted with a slingshot. Now, I'm always hesitant to mention stories like this because they really are so rare about these attempted abductions, and we don't know the full story here, but... I don't like to create the impression that people are abducted all the time by strangers when that's not necessarily the case. But a Michigan girl was able to escape an attempted kidnapping when her brother used a slingshot to strike the would-be attacker. So the Michigan State Police arrested the accused assailant in, in Michigan, obviously. But they're not withhold, They're not announcing his name because the would-be abductor was only 17 years old, and he has been. He, he, although he's been charged as an adult with one count of attempted kidnapping and child enticement, there's also one count of attempted assault and one count of assault and battery. So the eight-year-old girl was in her backyard when the uh, assailant came out of the woods, grabbed her, and covered her mouth. And then the girl's brother hit the attacker in the head and the chest using a slingshot. And then later, police arrested the 17-year-old based on another family member's description of the suspect. Uh, And and by the way, the kid hit him pretty good with the slingshot. Authorities said the teenager had 
visible wounds from the slingshot. So I don't know what the circumstance was here. I don't know if this was somebody that's mentally ill. I don't know if this was somebody that knew this little girl. I don't know if this was a stranger walking around looking for someone to abduct. But thank God the brother was there looking out for his sister, and thank God he had that slingshot. So it's all a slingshot is a tool, right? It could be used for good or evil. Uh, I don't have that boy's name that uh, that did this. Otherwise, I would give him a shout-out by name. I want to give a commendation to Ella Reed. I also don't like to mention these stories because shark attacks are so rare. And I don't want to convey the impression that they happen all the time. But you know what? They do happen once in a while. And Ella Reed is a 13-year-old girl who courageously fought off a shark that attacked her at a Florida beach on Thursday. She was sitting in the shallow water near a jetty at Fort Pierce Beach when she suddenly felt a piercing pain in her side and came face-to-face with a shark. And she said she punched the shark, which she described as five to six feet long bull shark, and forced it to temporarily retreat before it returned. It wouldn't leave her alone, so she used her arm and her hand, too. So it got, it bit her arm, it bit her finger, and when the shark approached again, this little girl, not little girl, this teenage girl, Ella Reed, was bleeding, and she's crying out for her mom and her brother, who were at the beach with her. And she was shaking, but she was calm. She was bitten in the stomach, bitten in the arm, bitten in the finger, bitten at the top of her knee. She said she didn't feel much pain because the adrenaline was through the roof, but she got 19 stitches for these shark bites. So um, she fought off this shark and lived to tell about it. How many people can say that? By the way, if you've ever fought off a shark and lived to tell about it, I'd love to hear from you. Give me a call, 800-848-9222. I want to commend Tamiro, excuse me, Tamiko Hirano. Tamiko Hirano lives in Japan. And what Hirano has done is set up a barista training program for people with autism. So people who are autistic can go to Hirano's program and train to be a barista, to get a job. Now, is that like getting a medical degree? No. But it's a job that you'll be employable. So I think it's a great way to go out of your way to uh, help out people with uh, with autism like this. And uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people with autism or autism spectrum disorder, they can live to be older. And so you want them being productive, working members of society. And I think it's a great way forward with that. I want to commend Yingling. I like Yingling as a beer. I'm not the biggest beer drinker in the world, but if I see a Yingling in a cooler at a barbecue somewhere, I'll grab it. And I will be all the more prepared to grab it now because they have launched a limited edition red, white, and blue can to support veterans. Now, this is great. So a portion of the Yingling that you buy... um will go towards veterans' charities. 
And each can also has a QR code that um, when scanned, scanned, the codes allow the beer drinker to uh, watch a music video. So I think it's a brilliant bit of marketing, and I think it's a, a brilliant bit of charity. And I think, obviously, they're trying to capitalize on the Bud Light market share, given the controversy that they've undergone with Dylan Mulvaney. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it. All right. I want to commend the Mediterranean Dash Diet for neurogenitive delay. Neurodegenerative delay. It's a bit of a mouthful. So they call it the MIND Diet. M-I-N-D. And according to a a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, this diet, will lower your risk of dementia by 17%. Now, I'm someone very concerned about dementia because I really treasure my memory, and I think about this all the time. And this is what they say you should eat if you want to have this 17% reduced risk of dementia. At least three servings per day of whole grains, at least one serving per day of vegetables other than green leafy ones, More than six servings per week of green leafy vegetables. At least five servings per week of nuts. At least four meals per week of beans. That's a lot of beans. Uh, At least two servings per week of berries. At least two meals per week of poultry. At least one meal per week of fish. And use olive oil for cooking. It also limits certain Items, pastries, excuse me, pastries, sweets, red meat, and unfortunately, it's not good for me, cheese, cheese and fried food, butter and margarine. So that is the mind, the mind diet. Uh, lastly, I want to I want to commend Lucia Forsef. I hear stories like this and I'll tell you I really do believe in karma I really do believe in God a California woman who recently overcame homelessness is now a millionaire after winning the five million dollar prize in a lottery scratch-off game Lucia Forsef had no housing in 2017 but she battled back to overcome these challenges that she was dealing with within a few years. But this month, this was a woman who was homeless six years ago. This month, she could put any doubt behind her because she is now a multimillionaire. And she said, I only bought one ticket. I closed my eyes and picked that one, and it won. So she went to a Walmart supercenter in Contra Costa County to get an oil change for her car and said she scratched the top prize-winning ticket right outside. I first thought I'd won a free ticket, but I checked, and it said I won $5 million. The fact that she bought a ticket called 2023 had a lot of deep meaning for her. Because six years ago, she was homeless. This year, she's getting married. She's getting her associate's degree, and she won $5 million. She said, you never think you have a chance to win it. It is just random. Being homeless just six years ago, I never thought it would happen to someone like me. 
So she plans on buying a house and investing the rest of her newfound fortune. Good for her. Good for her. Uh, I, I can't think of a more worthy lottery winner. All right. That is this week's edition of Commendations. Comments on anyone I've commended. You're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. Comments on anything that uh, we've covered earlier. You're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. Keith Ablo will join me next hour. We'll talk about what's happening with respect to mental illness in this country. I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. By the new beat fund. Found, right? Found a fund. Fun. New beat fund. I like it. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. You want to comment on anything we're doing? 800-848-9222. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, join our Facebook group. You can just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and haters on Facebook. The original Rick in the state of New Jersey has been patiently holding, which ironically is one of the United, the original 13 states that were part of the United States of America. So how apropos that the original Rick would be in an original state. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Regarding your, your uh, blood test, just another thing you should know. Uh, first of all, I'm a little concerned you haven't had one. A TSA test because you know what happened to Bernie by waiting. So I'm glad you're getting it. But Thank here's you. something you should know: um, if you have sex 48 hours before your test, either with yourself or your wife or whoever, uh, it will read falsely high. I found that out, and they were going to send me for painful biopsies and all that. Oh, one of so high in one year, indication of cancer, blah blah blah. I read about this, so I waited. Had the test redone, and it was normal. They were going to send me for all these painful, possibly dangerous biopsies on a false positive. You're kidding. And my, yeah, no, and my doctor wasn't even aware of this. So they won't tell you about this. I'm telling you so that you don't do it, and you go in and you get a normal reading. You know? Well, I'm glad you told me that, Rick. Thank you. I'm going to check that out. Uh, if I have to make some adjustments, I'll make some adjustments. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Rocco is in Saratoga. Hello, Rocco. Yeah, 
hello, Frank. First time caller here. Ah, welcome, so, welcome. Let me let me make a couple of points. That that was fun. I don't know, funny in an indirect way. So, Rachel, you're good when Frank when you go for your uh, yeah, exactly. Podcast, She's right? safe. Okay, She's safe. Gotcha. Well, I, I, well, I want to I want to check that out independently. Yeah, I would too. I'm not going to just that take Rick's little, word for yeah. that. I don't know about that, but yeah, okay, check it out. I will. Uh, first, first point, education-wise, Frank, you're a smart guy. Why aren't there more Bronx scientists, Brooklyn Tech, Stuyvesants in the city? You, you tell me why. I, Come I, on, I can't tell you. Tell, tell me. Okay, then I'll tell you. Exceptional students and exceptional teachers. Okay, there aren't enough of either. That's why those are the schools. All the exceptional kids go to them. The exceptional teachers teach there. Not enough to spread around every school. I went to I went to Catholic school in the Bronx back in the day, St. Adalbert in the Merrill section of the South Bronx. We had some nuns. We had some lay teachers. Great because, hey, we knew we were there for school, for education. No messing around. It wasn't, you know, a free-for-all like some schools are today. So that's one thing. Point number two, um, immigrants. I'm an immigrant. I wasn't born in the U.S. of A. I love this country, the greatest country on the face of the earth. No ifs, ands, or buts. No matter what anyone says, show me a better place to live and be. There is none. I don't care where you are. People aren't rushing to Sweden. People aren't rushing to Hungary to live. Where, Where do they come? They come here. So don't tell me, you know, our country has issues, no question about it. But so does every other country. But yet people, where do they always want to go? USA, all the way, right? Absolutely. Tell me, is, is Absolutely. anyone saying, hey, I really want to go to Honduras? It's great there. Let, let's go and Well, And it's not, it's not just saying I really want to go somewhere. It's people who are being or willing to risk their lives to get here. How many right. other countries can you say that about? None. Zero. Zilch. None. Except if you're in a war-torn country and you just want to escape, you might go to the country that borders your country. Sure. But other than that, you're coming to the U.S. of A. Maybe England, you know, some England. But, uh, you know, no one's saying, like I said, you know, I'm going to Honduras. I'm going to Ecuador. No, they're not saying I'm, you know, leaving my I'm not leaving Egypt or Afghanistan and I'm going to Honduras. Or I, I hate to pick on Honduras. Sorry, yeah. Honduras. No, yeah, they, but there's some great, great cigars in Honduras. Uh, of a country, you know, that people aren't necessarily running to. I understood. Um, uh, like so, I Rocco, said, where did you come yeah. from? Italy? How did you know? Uh, Lucky guy. Did my name Rocco give it away? That was the clue. I'm named after my grandfather. Oh, nice. So am I. I came from Giovinazzo Body. My my, uh, grandparents are also Tardantino and Body. My uncle is Customato. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, technically, and you can look this up. Mike Tyson is my cousin. That's that's great. He is. I you know, because Cuss adopted sure. Mike, right? Sure. So you know the story about Cuss. He's one of the greatest trainers in the history of boxing. Absolutely. So he, his family is an immigrant, okay? He took in Mike Tyson, turned him into the greatest heavyweight champion ever until Don King, because Cuss passed away, took him over and, and ruined him. You know, messed him up. To this day, Mike still cries every time you bring up Cuss. 
You know, Cus was his father. Cus was everything to him. Hey, he never knew his father. His mother died when he was 12. So that's why Cuss became his legal guardian and then adopted Mike. Okay, and 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 you know, Cuss was everything to Mike. That's he turned him into the champion he was. He made him believe in himself to the point where this abandoned twelve-year-old kid that didn't know anything but to gangbang because there was no parental influence in his life turned into a world champion when there was. Celebrate mothers every day and grandmothers. Okay, you know, definitely. You know, see what I, can happen with an immigrant. See what can happen with an immigrant. So that, let's not put all the immigrants. Oh no, yeah, I, I, I'm yeah. doing the exact opposite no, of that. No, uh, I know, Frank. You, um, I'm talking about some of the callers that uh, jump on the bandwagon. Oh no, we don't. Hey, they're not all bad people. They're bad people everywhere and anywhere. Hundred percent. That's exactly right. right. Hey, I have heard that, and maybe you can confirm this: that yeah. um, Keith Olbermann. Um, yes. was actually, uh, his aunt was Customato's yes, niece. Aunt. Is that accurate? Yes, that is accurate. What you tell the people, I know what you tell. Well, so, saying, so but, you're related yeah. to Keith Oberman then as yes. well. Yes. Maria, his mother, figure it out. She's yeah. not, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, we're related to the Obermans, the D'Amato's and the Rosado's. I'm and, a Rosado. Well, and, and most impressively, uh, Mike Cuss, Tyson. That's great. Yeah. And Cuss' mother was Elizabeth Rosado, which was my grandfather, Rocco's sister. That's pretty And neat. I'm Rocco, named after my grandfather. You know, the first Italian sure. son. Exactly. Name him after. So there you go. There's the connection. All right, Rocco. Believe I'm it or run. not. Hey, uh, believe make, it or not. Call Thanks. again, okay? Talking to call you. A, call again. Thanks, Rocco. 800-848-9222. I like that guy. He had a lot of energy. He was cool. All right. Uh, hey, I do not watch Wheel of Fortune, but I mean, I've seen Wheel of Fortune, but I don't watch it. My grandmother used to like Wheel of Fortune. The um, But I do watch Jeopardy every day. And now uh, with the Jeopardy Masters tournament, I'm seeing a little bit more Wheel of Fortune because Jeopardy's on from 7 to 7.30, and then Jeopardy Masters starts at 8. So a lot of times I'll just leave the television set on without really paying attention, and then you end up seeing a little bit of Wheel of Fortune. Now, even though I'm not a Wheel of Fortune fan, and I'm nothing against it, it's just it's just not my thing. I, I like trivia. I like facts. So even though I'm not a Wheel of Fortune fan... I really have always been a fan of Pat Sajak. I've always been a fan also of the original host of Wheel of Fortune, uh, Chuck Woolery. I think Pat Sajak is a real talent. I used to enjoy him over the years sitting in for um, Larry King occasionally. I thought he had a, a couple of great interviews with Rush Limbaugh a few times. I think he's actually a great interviewer. He, For a short time, if memory serves... He had a a TV show about 20 years ago, and it only lasted a couple of months on the weekend on the Fox News Channel. I think it was on the Fox News Channel. It might have been elsewhere. But he's very good. I find him to be a very talented... Yeah, it was uh, Pat Sajak weekend in 2003. Yeah, That's pretty good. He knows about baseball. He used to do a syndicated weekly radio sports talk show. And he's he strikes me as just a very good guy. And a great personality. He did host Jeopardy one time. This is about 30 years ago. On April Fool's Day, 
he and Alex Trebek switched jobs on April Fool's Day, which is very funny, I think. And this year, I think uh, two of the late night hosts did it. Maybe it was Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon. Maybe I'll do that with one of my colleagues this year for April Fool's Day. We'll see. Well, I mean, next year. It's late for this year. But anyway, so even though I don't watch the show that has made him famous and I'm sure super wealthy, I always follow what Pat Sajak is up to. So I read this article in the New York Post over the weekend by Michael Starr. And apparently in recent weeks, there's been a Wheel of Fortune puzzle that can't be solved by buying a vowel or guessing another consonant. And the question people are asking is, what in the world is going on with Pat Sajak, the host of Wheel of Fortune? The 76-year-old game show legend, I'm reading from the Post now, has been acting quite bizarrely. In the last month or so, Sajak has put a contestant in a chokehold, claimed he hides in letter in Vanna White's uh, garden, asked the contestant to remove his shirt, and tugged on a contestant's beard. On this past Monday's show, he even scolded a contestant who grabbed the envelope in the show's bonus round, saying, don't ever do it again. One can't help but wonder if America's longest-running game show host has finally had enough, or maybe he was always this strange and grumpy. Um, What do you think? I don't watch the show enough to notice any bizarre behavior, but I'm curious if you are one of these people that watches Wheel of Fortune regularly, is something up with Pat Sajak? Because I'm always hesitant to make judgments based on just one article. But if a bunch of people say, yeah, you know, I don't know what the story is with Pat Sajak, what do you think's going on? 800-848-9222. I think, look, if something is up with Pat Sajak, and I have no idea if it is, I think he's just bored. The man has been hosting this show since 1981. I mean, you do the same thing for over 40 years, and I'm sure it's a lot of fun, but look, if Pat Sajak wasn't getting paid $15 million a season, I'm not sure he would have done this just for fun after 30 years, 35 years, 40 years. This is a long time to be saying, yeah, there's one end. Yeah, okay, go ahead. You'd like to solve? I mean, I could see someone as intelligent as Pat Sajak is, and he is intelligent. I could see that being very limiting. I almost feel the same way, and it's obviously a very different ballgame, that I did about Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer used to tell me and others, that if he was that he wouldn't even watch his show, he thinks it's so. He thought it was so stupid. I kind of feel that way about Pat Sajak. I kind of feel like it's almost. I don't want to use the term beneath him, but I get the sense that he's maybe not enjoying it as he maybe did twenty five, thirty years ago, and he doesn't need the money anymore. I mean, obviously, I'm sure he'll take it. So. They're saying that um, but the, the Post compares him to Johnny Carson because Johnny Carson had a run as the host of The Tonight Show that seemed like it never ended, but it was just 30 years. And that was at a time when Johnny was taking weeks of vacation towards the end of his run. 
Pat Sajak's been doing it for over 40 years, and he doesn't take that kind of vacation. So these uh, recent hijinks are not the first time that he's exhibited strange behavior, according to the Post article. In the fall of 2020, in a span of 10 days, there were numerous incidents. He snapped at a contestant for interrupting him while he read a commercial promo on one show. On another, he told a competitor to stop making sound effects when they let out a celebratory yelp. In 2021, he even mocked, according to the Post, I can't independently verify this, he even mocked a young man's speech impediment on air. The following year, he made viewers cringe when he asked uh, Vanna White, have you ever watched opera in the buff? I'm just curious. I I think some of this is just kind of being playful. But according to the Michael Starr in the Post, moments like this have reportedly put Sajak on thin ice with his bosses. One insider, again, I, I, I don't put too much stock into what these anonymous insiders say, but one anonymous insider told OK, that's a media outlet, OK, Pat has put his foot in it one too many times and offended people with his off-color humor and temperamental behavior. Network brass and top-level producers have come down hard on him and read him the riot act. So, I don't know, but they're saying even off-camera, Sajak's behavior can also be edgy. Like Chuck Woolery, who was his predecessor, he's been known for, not on the show, but on social media and elsewhere, publicly expressing his conservative views on a variety of topics like COVID vaccines, climate change. He once tweeted, global warming alarmists are unpatriotic racists knowingly misleading for their own ends. Then he later apologized and deleted that tweet. But he is known, aside from his politics, for a, a, a cutting sense of humor. So... I think maybe some of this could be attempts at humor that haven't gone well, and people are reading more into it. So, His daughter, when he had a heart issue, filled in for him a couple of times. I think what they actually did is they had Vanna White host, and his daughter, who's very attractive, uh, blonde, just like Vanna White, she filled in for Vanna White as the letter turner. So the show's still doing well. In the week ending April 17th, it pulled in over 8 million viewers each weeknight. 8 million viewers. To put that in perspective, there were 3.1 million people that watched the Trump town hall debate on CNN. 3.1 million. And Sajak is doing more than double that on Wheel of Fortune every night. And the show's not showing any sign of uh, slowing down. So the sponsors are not pulling their ads. The sponsors are not threatening to pull their ads. And I think that as long as that's the case, he'll be able to stay there as long as he wants. Here's one of the incidents that uh, people have pointed to as an indication that maybe Pat Sajak is a couple of aces short of a full deck. So he's reverting to that, right? But don't ever do it again. So 
I, I think maybe people are making too much about this. Some people are speculating that this could all be, this acting out could be something of a contract ploy. Because both he and Vanna White, who apparently he gets along very well with, they're both signed on through 2024. So, uh, but look, the guy, they say the guy's worth between 65 and $75 million. And he owns a nice house in L.A., got a nice mansion in Maryland, probably listening to us right now on WCBM. And um, they divide their time between California and Maryland. So, I don't know. I'm curious if you've noticed anything. I I kind of think that maybe Michael Starr was a little short on column material for this week. And again, it's nothing against Michael Starr. He's a great journalist, does a great job. Curious if you think there's anything to this. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Speaking of comments that have gotten some attention for being a little odd, President Biden was at Howard University Saturday, and his comments, they are getting some attention. Now, President Biden makes a lot of gaffes, and I try not to be one of these people that jumps on gaffes, because whenever you're, whenever you speak, especially when you're in your 80s, especially when you've had a stutter, you're going to make gaffes. I don't think it's that big of a deal. This is what he said as he as the commencement speaker at Howard on Saturday. Listen to this. The harsh reality that racism has long torn us apart. It's a battle that's never really over. But on the best days, enough of us have the guts and the hearts to st- stand up for the best in us. To choose love over hate. Unity over disunion, progress over retreat. To stand up against the poison of white supremacy, as I did my inaugural address to a single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland, is white supremacy. And I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say wherever I go, to stand up for truth over lies, lies told for power and profit, to confront the ongoing assault, to subvert our elections, suppress our right to vote. So a couple of things here. So what people are picking on him for is when Biden says, and you could tell this is when he went off script, and that's always when Biden is going to get in trouble. When he says the words, and I'm not just saying that because I'm at a black HBCU. Well, black stands for historically black college and university. So you don't need to add the word black. Black is in the acronym. So what he's saying is, I'm not just saying this because I'm at a black, historically black college. You see what I'm saying? So it's redundant. I don't think that's big, that big of a deal, honestly, as far as gaffes for Joe Biden go, because I still I say, and you're not supposed to say it, I still say ATM machine, but you really shouldn't say ATM machine because machine is in the acronym ATM. It's automated teller machine. I say ATM machine all the time. So it, I'm not going to pick on Biden 
for saying black HBCU when I'm saying ATM machine. Now, um, what I will do is say what Biden is saying is completely inaccurate. Uh, Putting aside whether he's right about white terrorism, uh, white supremacy, however he put it, being the greatest threat, which I'm not sure it is, to terroristic threat in the country today. Of course he's saying it because he's at a black college. That's the only reason he's saying it. When is the last time he was at a white college as their commencement speaker and said, hey, by the way, the biggest threat we're facing today is white supremacy. I mean, it's total politician pandering 101. Of course that's why he's saying it. So just own it. Whenever somebody says something to the effect of, well, I am not saying this because of X, the first place you should look is X. So um, eight open lines if you want to comment. You want to talk about Pat Sajak, Joe Biden, Mars, 800-848-9222, We'll take as many of your calls as we can. And then uh, Dr. Keith Ablo is going to join us. Looking forward to talking with him. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Why should you want to know? Don't you mind about the future? Don't you try to think ahead? Save tomorrow for tomorrow. Think about today instead. Love this I love this song. I love this show. I love. I've never seen the theatrical version, but I've uh, seen the film, and I listen to the soundtrack all the time. This, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, the is, "What's the Buzz" from Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar is a rock opera that tells the story of Jesus, and it's not only a great story and a wonderful film, but the music in this production is so beautiful. I love every song in there. And I've just gotten in the habit of um, playing the soundtrack at random times. Whenever we're looking for background that's not talk radio, which is my go-to, I am putting on the original cast recording of Jesus Christ Superstar. This is from the film, you could tell, because it's different actors than, uh, than what I hear in the original cast recording when my smart speaker says to me but it's just it's great you know i, I get in these habits uh, uh where i'm obsessed with sounds or quotes you know um for instance the when i first saw ted lasso i would just walk around the house and say trent crim the independent uh, again and again and again and again and it, like, almost, if you didn't know about my idiosyncrasies, you'd think that I was a, um, a, I, I don't know how to 
put this without being offensive to stroke victims, but you'd think I was some sort of a stroke victim, somehow afflicted, because I just walk around muttering to myself. And so at the moment, the uh, the two things that I'm obsessed with are the soundtrack again and again to Jesus Christ Superstar, although that's not new. I they, that I used to keep the the CD in my car when cars still had CD players, and I would listen to it all the time. Just love the music, and I am obsessed with saying three little words. Fair to flare. I am obsessed with saying again and again. Fair to flare. Fair to flare. Uh, and you know, I mean, in every context, I am looking for a way. And this is not a radio bit. I'm looking for a way to say it all the time. Because And I, I'm driving Rachel crazy because not only am I saying it all the time and finding different ways to say it, but I'm making her – now, my wife doesn't care about wrestling or Ric Flair in the least. What you say makes no sense. And I am forcing her to watch all these vintage wrestling clips and promos from 30 be years ago. That's not the way, the way to do it. If you don't want to be fair to Flair, then do it the way you're doing. But if you really want to be fair to Flair, to be fair to Flair, that's don't the way to do it. Don't start with a fair to Flair. I put on the 1992 Royal Rumble Saturday night just to hear Bobby Heenan say fair to Flair repeatedly. Be fair to Flair. It's really it's really somewhat problematic. But um, speaking of, in all seriousness, something that is not fair to Flair, the, I mentioned this in my Facebook Live video that I did on Saturday, and you can watch the video at facebook.com slash moranofan. Um, the WWE only recognizes Ric Flair as a 16-time world champion. He is not. He is a 21-time world champion, and there's really no excuse for that. And uh, I have my theory, which I go into in this video, as to why that why that's the case, that they're not giving him credit for the full 21. But hey, watch the video and tell me what you think. I'm going to take your calls in just a second. Hey, by the way, Kenneth, that reminds me on the Facebook video front. I was copied on some email that ostensibly answered the question about why the video that you took about me talking about reparations on Thursday uh, morning was not posted to to the world of social media. What was the official, just to update people, what was the official response from the social media folks on this? I got not a single response. No, but not weren't you copied on on, uh, on something? No, I didn't get a I didn't get a follow up email from them. I because oh, I got something, but it was it was almost because I asked our program director what the story was, and huh. he emailed them, which I appreciated. And then they said, "Oh, you know, they'll let us know if there's content issues in the future that we can't post." Um, yeah, you. They wrote to you. Yeah, Did you're they? you're on this email. Which, which uh, I don't see that I'm in my. Feed. Yeah, you're on this email. Let and me, let me browse. It's, it let says, me browse. Kenneth, we are not censoring content on social media. Content regarding race, slavery, etc., has a greater possibility of being flagged on social media. It is merely looking out for the account and the backlash that could be received. Moving forward, we will post all clips that are sent to us. If it receives negativity on social media or if we get flagged, we will reach out and let you know all let you all know accordingly. Well, I think that's very reasonable. So that's all we're asking. Yeah. And by the way, that says a lot about I want to know if Facebook is flagging our reparations video 
Because my position on reparations currently is the same one as Gavin Newsom's. So what what are we really saying? That we can't have a discussion about something uh, as important and as hotly debated as reparations? That's not right. I mean, I want to know if Facebook's not allowing those conversations to happen. All right, 800-848-9222. Ann. Ann is in Minnesota, Jesse Ventura land. Hello, Ann. Oh, good morning. Hi. How, how's everything going? Everything is great, Ann. And what station are you listening to us out there on? Um, I am listening to you on iHeartRadio. Wonderful. Great. Happy to have you. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, obviously, you're on the East Coast. How are things in the car industry on your side of town? You know, I am the absolute worst person that you can mm-hmm. ask about this. And because my I know how to do um, two things with when it comes to a car. I know how to uh, change a flat tire and I know how to jumpstart a battery. And the only reason I know how to do either of those things is because I have been in a position where I've killed a battery so many times and driven over a pothole and killed a tire so many times that I've been forced to learn those things out of necessity. There's a, a My wife would tell you I don't even know how to drive. So I uh, really can't tell you uh, what's going on. I will say this. I think a lot of the supply problems that you've seen in these cars, uh, I, I, the uh, car dealers, I think that's gone away. My interest with the car industry is AM radio. Ford and others talk about doing away with AM. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, if you were going to make a list of the 10 to 20 greatest living actors, I think you would be hard-pressed not to include this man. You talking to me? You talking to me? Talking to me? Then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? That, of course, is Robert De Niro in the film Taxi Driver. Robert De Niro, this is a man who has had the kind of diversity of work that people can only dream about. He's done dramatic roles. He's done comedic roles. He's done roles that are somewhere in between. I mean, if you look, uh, there's a guy that played Frankenstein. He's done horror. 
He played Frankenstein's monster, I should say, in in the Coppola version of, of Frankenstein. Wag the Dog with Dustin Hoffman. Copland with Sylvester Stallone. Analyze This with Billy Crystal. Midnight Run with Charles Grodin. Bang the Drum Slowly with, uh, who's in, uh, Vincent Giardina and Michael Moriarty. Uh, A Bronx Tale where, you know, he he is just incredible as the bus driver with Chaz Palminteri. Um, And a lot of people didn't like it. I know it's going to be a Broadway show now. But New York, New York with Liza Minnelli. Meet the Parents with Ben Stiller. Awakenings with Robert Williams. Even more recently, films like Joker with um, Joaquin Phoenix. Films like uh, Silver Linings Playbook. The guy is a remarkable actor. And, of course, who could forget... He's going to die. I'm making all feet on the shoes. His role as Vito Corleone, for which I believe he won an Oscar uh, in The Godfather Part Two, And that, I believe, is the only time you've seen two different actors win an Academy Award for playing the same category, uh, same actor. I, I could be wrong about that. It almost happened again with True Grit, but it didn't. But I think that's the only time that two different actors have won an Academy Award for playing the same character. And you know who was the original choice for to play Vito Corleone, young Vito Corleone in The Godfather Part II? I've, I've mentioned this before, I think. The original choice was Marlon Brando. Because Marlon Brando, when he did The Godfather, was actually pretty young. He used aging makeup to make himself look older, but he was really not that much older than De Niro. So the thought was, let him play himself as a younger man, but, you know, Brando, I think, wanted too much money, and Paramount went with uh, De Niro, who they were very high on. Anyway, well, anyway, Robert De Niro is becoming a dad for the seventh time. His oldest child is 52 years old. He is 79 years old. He is 79 years old and has sired a seventh child with uh, the daughter. It's a daughter, baby girl. The daughter is named Gia Virginia. He's He's having this child with his or has had this child with his girlfriend Tiffany Chen, who's a martial arts instructor and 45 years old. The baby is, according to uh, Gail King, the baby was born April 6th, 8 pounds, 6 ounces. De Niro's oldest child is in his early 50s. This man is 79 years old. He has had, this is the fourth woman that he's had children with. He has children old enough to be grandparents themselves. And the question that I want to explore, and we've gone into this before, is this selfish to have a child for the first time at 79? Not for the first time, but to bring a child into this world when you're 79. Now, men do not have the same sort of biological clock that women do. Larry King has done this. Um, Al D'Amato did this. Having a child, you know, usually you hook up with a much younger woman, which is clearly the, true with D'Amato. It was true with Larry King, and it's true with uh, Robert De Niro. And 
you are entering into a different stage in your life. How much longer, realistically, is Robert De Niro going to live? 15 years? Right? Maybe 20? He lives to 99? That means this person will, in all likelihood, grow up in at least their teenage formative years. And I hope Robert De Niro lives for another 30 years. Let him keep making movies for another 30 years. He's a great actor, one of the greatest of all time. But this child, Gia, is going to go through her teenage formative years in all likelihood without a father, at least not with Robert De Niro as her father, alive. Additionally, I see the energy that it takes to chase after Carmine and just be involved in Carmine's life, it's very challenging. And I am, I don't say my age, but I am substantially younger than 79 years old. Now, I'm sure Robert De Niro has got money, although we've read a lot about the financial difficulties that he's had. But I'm sure he's got money and he can afford more childcare than I can afford and so forth. But with his wife... At forty or girlfriend at forty five years old, and he at seventy nine. And again, I'm a big believer that every circumstance is different, every situation is different, and I don't like to sit in judgment of anybody. I do wonder, and it's great that look, this child seems like a beautiful little girl. It's great that there's a child brought into the world. It's great. I do wonder if this is a little selfish. We're not talking about having a child at 50 or 60 or 65. This man is becoming a father at 79 years old. What do you think of that? I know it's been happening for a long time. I think Moses had a a child in his 70s or sired a, a child in his 70s. So they were doing it even thousands of years ago in biblical times. I am admittedly agnostic about this because, look, if it works for their family, great. They know their situation a lot better than I do. But I I wonder also if there's going to be people in their 70s that read about this case, that hear me talk about this situation, and say, well, look, if Robert De Niro can have a child in his 70s, why can't I? And then they'll go and... That they'll go out and try to have children in their 70s when maybe they don't have the resources of a Robert De Niro or the energy level of a Robert De Niro. I mean, I don't know. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. Hopefully, little Gia inherits her father's acting chops. But look, I figure it this way. Better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. <laughs> That is from the classic film, The King of Comedy, which a lot of people haven't seen. That film, I didn't realize that until just now, that film, I believe, is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Can you believe it? 40th anniversary. It's been out. Incredible. Scorsese. Jerry Lewis is great in that picture, too. And uh, Sandra Bernhardt is great in that picture. I mean, it's a wonderful film. Uh, David Cross was on uh, Conan O'Brien's talk show about four years ago talking about 
becoming an older dad. David Cross is, of course, a comedian. You're now having the experience of being uh, like a little bit of an older dad with a young kid. Sure, yeah, and uh, and it's uh, I, this is for real. Literally, uh, the day I flew, I flew out here on Monday night, and that day I had taken my daughter to a playground park in uh, in Brooklyn where we live, and I was we were getting ready to leave, and uh, she was kind of being fussy, and I was like, "Come on, don't you want to see?" Mommy and Ollie, and Ollie is our dog, um, and she was being a little difficult, and I was taking her in the stroller, and there's a woman on a bench uh, who was just trying to be engaging and, and friendly chit-chat, and she, you know, because she was being fussy, and, uh, um, and she looked up, and she's like, uh, why go home to Mommy when you can have so much fun with Grandpa? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and it, what? Yes, yes. What? And I didn't, it did, it took me, I was like three steps out of the gate before I went, Oh, wait a second. I'm I'm grandpa. <laughs> I'm- now, uh, De Niro admitted in an interview th- last week, he said being a parent never gets easier. And I'm sure that's true. I only have the one, but I'm sure that's true. So having a baby is a wonderful thing. And I wouldn't want to deny any person the chance to be a parent. Uh, including this woman who I believe is having her first child here or has had her first child. But sometimes you have to think about what that child's life is going to be like if you're not in it. I'm sure the child will be financially taken care of, but I don't know. I'll tell you this. I wouldn't be doing this at 79 years old, having a baby at 79. Is this selfish? That is the uh, question of the day. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Paul in Staten Island, what do you think? 79 too old to have a child? Frank, 100%. I posted this on my Facebook the, uh, the other day when I read this, actually. In my opinion, she's she's a gold digger. What's she? She's in her 40s, right? 45, she's, right. She, 45. He's, he's older than my, than my father is. And she's just um, giving her financial future uh, security, basically, is what that is. Whether, you know, I'm going to say she's not going to love the child, but either way, you know, there's going to be money coming in. The gravy train's going to be coming in from De Niro. And De Niro, I, I mean, look how old he's getting. You know, I, I'm my daughter's a 14. I'm I'm 51. You know, and it was hard as young as I am raising them. Imagine him as he starts get as, as the kid starts walking around and everything else. She's going to miss out on fatherhood with him. Well, I think you're right. And that's exactly, and thank you for the call, Paul. I appreciate that. And I, I, I think that's exactly the point I'm raising, is that uh, no matter what, how much money Robert De Niro has, no matter how much energy Robert De Niro has, first of all, in a lot of couples, having a, a child at 45 might be considered old. But 79 is a different ball game different ball game no matter how much energy and how much money you have nothing really replaces having a father in your life and this probably means that robert de niro is not going to be around to see his daughter grow up and see his uh to walk his little girl down the aisle now your father can die at a young age too my wife her dad i never met passed away when she was 16 a young guy Young guy. So the you always you just never know, right? This person could live forever. 
uh, this person might get hit by a bus at 42. I just wonder about actually planning, and this baby was planned, planning to have a child at 79 years of age. What do you think of it? 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I look at it, you know, this particular set of facts, I look at it 90, 95% from the 45-year-old girlfriend's point of view. She could have just got uh, a random guy to sire the child. She could have got a sperm donor. She could have got a 22-year-old guy. You know, she's the one who wants the child. She's the one who thinks she'll be around in the long run. And uh, I just see it as strictly from my point of view. And if De Niro, she can replace De Niro with another guy if need be. As as this next father of the child, right? I just wonder how fair that is to the baby, though. I think, but I I don't think it's De Niro's call in this case. I think it's like the woman's call. She's the one, uh, you know. Uh, she's not a, a youngster. She's you know making a mature decision from her own point of view. I just see it as, as her call. Well, strictly. it's thank you, Joe. It still does take two to tango. Right. So she could have been the one pushing for this. But look, Robert De Niro's got to agree to this. And at 79, I just wonder about the wisdom of this. What do you think? 800-848-9222. By the way, my um, Mike Porcelli, who's been a guest on the show before, who is the world's greatest car mechanic. He uh, pointed out to me when we were talking about cars, when that uh, nice woman, Ann from Minnesota, called earlier. She, he said, tell that listener his industry, my industry, this is him speaking to me, my industry will die if we do not train more people to do what I do. Very true. Uh, Mike Porcelli, as he said when he was on the show, a big advocate of trade education and technicians and mechanics. He's exactly right. Uh, we need more trade education in this country. That is for sure. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Talking about this Robert De Niro situation. Is it fair to the baby when you're born, when the child is born, and the father is 79 years old? Doesn't matter if it's famous, not so famous. 800-848-9222. And a lot of people asking the question, is it fair to flare? Be fair. To Flair. <laughs> By the way, that's from this particular Ric Flair film. the athlete. Ric Flair the philanthropist. Ric Flair the scholar. Ric Flair the kind. Ric Flair the just. It is of his desire to once again express to the fans, board of directors, and wrestlers of WCW that his retirement is permanent and final, and that over the past few months his good name has been wrongfully and unjustly smeared. It is with this in mind that he wishes all parties to be fair to Flair. Be fair to Flair, bottom line. Keith Ablow joining me in about 10 minutes to talk about mental health and uh, mental illness. We're uh, also going to be talking about, we're also going to be doing the $1,000 Minute shortly to give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000. 800-848-9222. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank. Uh, I was think- I've been thinking about this for a long time, actually. Uh, you remember Tony Randall? 
he actually did it when he was 75 and his wife or girlfriend, whatever, was only 25. Wow. It was a 50, 50 year difference. And he died and his kid, I think, was only either like five or six. Mm. So now just imagine she's going to remarry. Obviously, she's young. Some other guy's going to raise that kid. That kid might not even know about Tony Randall. And Tony Randall was his father, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, let's hope that uh, that the mother will uh, will you know share some memories about it. But your point's well taken. You know, I was I don't know if you heard my interview with Ariana Savalas, Telly Savalas's daughter, a month or so ago. But she has no memory of her father, and she her father was not exceptionally old when she was born. But her father died when she was five years old or so, and she doesn't remember anything about him. She only knows him from movies and TV shows and so forth. So, uh, I, I mean, that's such a sad thing to me. I consider myself very lucky to still have both of my parents. And um, I, I think that to do it at 79, there's no way that I would ever do it. What about you? Absolutely not. Absolutely. And I think, you know, kids don't, you know, I, I remember my mom was in an accident when I was seven and I can only really remember a few things of her while she was up and walking and I was seven. So m- most of my memories of her in bed, you know, after she was in the accident. And so that kid has going to have no memories of Tony Randall. And I'm sure, you know, hopefully, like you said, De Niro lives a long time. So his kid does, but you know, you don't have too many, you know, strong memories when you're that young. Uh, this is true. This is true, Kevin. Thank you very much for the call. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Is this selfish? What do you think? Uh, you know what? Maybe I'll ask Keith Ablow about this uh, in a few minutes. He, Keith Ablow is, obviously, he's a psychiatrist uh, but he is a guy that has a lot of opinions on many different subjects. So I will ask him about this regardless. Uh, well, I'll try. I got a lot of stuff to bring up with him. Not the least of which is the Jordan Neely situation. So we will get into that in a big way. You know, speaking of uh, of sons, you know what my son has gotten really into? And we try not to show him much television but he was into Sesame Street for a little while, and we allow him to watch a little bit of television in the morning when he's having his bottle, and then after his bath, his kind of nightcap bottle, when he, right before he gets ready for bed, right before I brush his teeth, he'll have a little bottle while he watches television. And I had heard about something called uh, Baby Einstein, and I said, why don't we show that to him? Instead of uh, Sesame Street. So anyway, we've been showing him this Baby Einstein. And if you're not familiar with it, basically it's music. Usually it's some kind of classical music or something that sounds like classical music. Over colors and shapes and different things. And I am watching these videos. First of all, he's transfixed. He absolutely loves it. And he... He asks for it, and this is what has gotten me a little nervous, honestly. And and it's Rachel and I are on the same page on this. We're trying to really limit his television viewing because now he asks for the TV to p- be put on. He points to the television, especially when he has his bottle, and he just goes, mm, mm, mm. he wants baby Einstein put on. And then as soon as it goes on, 
he goes to the couch and he stares at baby Einstein. And, and I thought if he's going to watch something, this is pretty good because and, and he does learn. You know, for instance, he'll see a clock on there and he'll say clock and they'll say clock. He'll uh, they'll show shapes and it'll say rectangle. And then he'll say rectangle. And he, he has learned words from this. Mostly it's songs about uh, different colors and uh, different animals, all sorts of things. Here's what you might hear in Baby Einstein. Green or blue, green or blue, let's take a look which one are you? Green or blue, green or blue, we can help you to get back to school. So you think, okay, that's good. It's good stuff. You learn about colors. And I thought it was educational. There's songs like Old MacDonald. You get the impression, right? You get it. So the woman who invented this was a stay-at-home mom in Colorado, Julie Agner Clark. And she was frustrated by the lack of educational entertainment for her 18-month-old daughter. Same, Same age Carmine is now. And she shot the first Baby Einstein video in her own basement with a a borrowed camcorder, a few puppets, and an $18,000 budget. Five years later, she sold the whole company to Disney for $25 million. And that's how much it, it exploded. She went on Oprah. President Bush praised her as representing the great enterprising spirit of America in the State of the Union address. However, in 2009... Disney was forced to admit that the videos had no educational value and offered full refunds to parents who had brought them. And there was one article that I read that said that children that watch Baby Einstein have a greater instance of developing ADHD than children that don't. Here, I thought I'm doing the right thing here. And all of a sudden, I'm not. According to what Disney says, it has no educational value. And according to what this other situation says, it's more likely that he'll get ADHD because he gets overstimulated. So I don't know what to do now because the kid is all into it. I mean, he really likes it. And I hate to not get, and again, we're talking maybe 20 minutes a day of this. And I hate to totally deprive him of this. And he does seem to be learning. He's learned clock from there. Uh, and look, we do a lot of reading and everything, too, which he enjoys. And a lot of just playing outside. But I uh, I hope it's not really screwing him up because now I feel pretty bad. 800-848-9222. Uh, Keith Ablo joining us in a moment. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Frank. Um, I mean, you're right. It's not really fair. But at the same time, you know, at least the, the girl will have a life. She'll have the De Niro name and, you know, probably some uh, some fortune to go with it and, and uh, you know, maybe a promising acting career. And uh, thirdly, at least she'll have like a treasure trove of media to get to know her father if she isn't able to do it, you know, growing up in person. Like, you know, she can see his movies, interviews and 
And, well, that's uh, true. You know, yeah, that yeah. that's uh, that's certainly that's certainly true. I um, well, I I don't know about an acting career because I don't know uh, if any of De Niro's other six children are 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 actors. So a lot of times, uh, the acting gene does not translate to a, another generation. But uh, but you never know. You certainly have opportunities that uh, that other people wouldn't if that's the route she chooses to go. Um, but your point's well taken. But I still I I would never do it. I would never do it. And I do worry that this is going to cause other 79 year old men to think, oh, well, look, Robert De Niro did it. So I'll do it, too. I don't know. Hey, uh, seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. We have a special Mother's Day edition of the thousand dollar minute. 800-848-9222. Answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, and we will give you $1,000. Simple as that. Mother's Day edition of the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Love my mama. Certainly true in my case. The great Stephanie Morano, uh, wonderful, wonderful mother and a wonderful grandmother. Uh, if there's one criticism, it's that she spoils both my son and me far too much. All right. Without further ado, we're going to see if we can help someone spoil their family members by getting them an extra thousand dollars with the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris. Andrea is in Manhattan. Hello, Andrea. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, Andrea. Andrea, have you heard this segment before? Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So you know what to do, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So we'll get started if you're ready uh, with this special Mother's Day edition of uh, the thousand dollar minute okay on what day of the week is mother's day celebrated sunday what similar event comes about a month after mother's day that honors one's other parent father's day who was the mother of jesus mary magdalene uh, you could have stopped at mary uh, but it's not mary. magdalene so it's, okay Following divorce or death, what is the new wife of one's father called? One's father. Stepmother. What was the name of the 60s musical group that had hit songs like California Dreamin'? Mamas and Papas. What what was Ivanka Trump's mother's first name? Ivana. 
According to the nursery rhyme, who went to the cupboard to give the poor dog a bone? Old Mother Hubbard. Who was the saint canonized by Pope Francis in 2016? Ooh. Yikes. Um... That was Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Uh, Well, you did very well. You got up to question number eight. Andrea, uh, well done. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. And uh, hopefully uh, you will uh, get to participate again in the future. Someone uh, that I know would have been all over that is one of the brightest people that I know. Happens to be a best-selling author, a television commentator. He's terrific on radio. He's a psychiatrist. He's uh, done it all in the medical field, in the media field. And uh, just a, a smart guy overall, kind enough to get up dark and early for us this Monday morning. Dr. Keith Ablo. Uh, Dr. Ablo, it has been far too long. How are you? Hey, I'm good, Frank. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. What, Top what, of the morning to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what's Mother's Day like in the Ablo household, Keith? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very blessed. My mother, who is 90, uh, enjoyed the bagels locks and cream cheese that I brought her yesterday and enjoyed it with her, my dad, who's 94. Whoa, good for them. Right? Jeez. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, driving generally to the mall, you know, to look for clothes for their kids still, right? I'm 61 years old. I still get pictures from my mother on my cell phone. What do you think of this, this shirt? Would you wear this? <laughs> <laughs> Growing up Jewish in America. That's outstanding. Uh, That is a hey, you know what? We were talking just a minute ago about Robert De Niro becoming a father again at 79 years old. And there's this whole debate right now about whether or not this is a selfish thing to do or not. You have a view on this? I do. You know, first of all, you know, De Niro is on the wrong side of the political aisle. But I won't I won't uh, make that the substance of this. Sure. Um, I think it's reprehensible. Listen, I understand, you know, that you could go to biology and say, well, why would men still be fertile uh, if uh, they shouldn't have children um, at 80? However, you know, number one, there are some things problematic about having kids that when you're that age genetically, You, you know, you do run into questions about whether sperm degrades and whether you're going to run into more trouble uh, in terms of uh, difficulties, disabilities, et cetera, in kids. But here's the other thing. You know, if you know pretty much that you're going to create a human being who loses his dad at, say, 19 or 20 years old, we'll say, let's say that he can live to 100, 21 years old is the outer limit, perhaps, of when this child will lose his or her father. Uh, it's not just that, Frank. It's the specter of that loss. So that means that from age 10, if De Niro lives long enough, from age 10 to 21, that child's going to be thinking, I'm going to lose my dad any minute. Disability, illness, things that will set in. I think it's really a bit self-focused to say, well, because I met a woman who wants to have a child and I'm, you know, connected to her. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Well, I'm not so sure, actually. And I know all of us are mortal. 
Sure. Anyone could go at any time. I get that. You know, you get married at 30, you never know. Right. But if we're playing the percentages based on an actuarial table, if you have a child at uh, 39, you have a much better chance of uh, living to that uh, child's uh, college graduation than at 79. That's for sure. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's largely my yeah. view as well. Uh, a bunch of things I want to pick your brain about. I got to ask you about this situation involving Jordan Neely. This is a situation that's just incredibly sad, and a lot of people have been focusing on Daniel Penny and what happened and whether he should be charged or how that should go. Well, the one aspect of it that's a real tragedy is this young man, relatively young, 30 years old, was clearly severely mentally ill, violently mentally ill, had attacked people, been arrested 41 times, and he was known to hospitals, he was known to the police, he was known to social services, and long before he stepped on that train and said loudly, I don't care if I die, or in words or substance, he was failed by city and state and maybe the federal government. What should be done to make sure that another Jordan Neely doesn't step on to a subway train today and that these people are getting the help that they should be getting. Frank, not only uh, is Jordan Neely an incredibly tragic story, uh, and you're right, it's not just about um, Mr. Penny and what might or might not happen to him as to his guilt or innocence. It's about it's about this horrible tragedy, uh, the system letting this person fall through the cracks. If you're arrested 40 odd times and it can't be demonstrated because i guarantee in those courtrooms it was not demonstrated that they were dealing with an evil person they were dealing with a sick person okay and all over america but certainly in new york uh there are people every single day who are going to court who are mentally ill and it's obvious and they're not being helped okay and so are they dying in chokeholds on subway cars having threatened people? No, the, the majority don't make headlines. The majority die um, because they get in altercations of another kind or because they take their own lives or because they die of overdose because our system is completely inept at identifying people in the criminal justice system who need mental health care and should be getting it so much sooner than they are. What would you do? You gotta empower judges. Number one, educate judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys to the fact that there are these folks uh, who will do so much better if you offer them mental health care treatment and enforce it, give them the tools. Every city should give prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys the tools to commune and say, look, what are we doing here? Let's use this new tool to confine this person for a time to a mental health facility. Now, of course, you'd need mental health facilities then, and, and you're just going to see a revolving door if you don't create programs and spaces for people who obviously, obviously are not horrible people, but are doing things they cannot control. 
so I, I think one of the things the current mayor of New York has been trying to do more of, is, or at least says, I don't know how effective it, it's been in actually being done yet, is uh, is to util- have broader utilization of Kendra's law so that people could be, if they require mental uh, health treatment and if they're severely mentally ill or violently mentally ill, you can essentially force this person to be medicated or or not, there seems to be a movement away from that in other cities. Uh, there's a lot of concerns about civil rights and, and things of that nature. Is is that a big part of the solution here, broader use of something like Kendra's Law to force people to be medicated, even if they don't necessarily want treatment? Well, you do have to be very careful of people's civil liberties. There's no question. If somebody seems to be of right mind and is saying, I don't want the medicine, I'll take the punishment. Okay, well, we can't help you right now. But what we may have to say is because you're a person who can't be relied upon to control yourself, um, what we should be doing is saying, listen, What this really is, is we're going to more broadly apply an insanity plea. Number one, you could say, let people plead not guilty by reason of insanity and really let juries or judges make a decision about that that's real. Right now, if you can demonstrate, for instance, you may, you may, and I've done this, right? I've testified in many cases with murder, violence of other kinds. If you can demonstrate as a prosecutor that somebody, say, ran away from the police after believing they had killed an alien or assaulted an alien, that act of running away from authority is used to say, well, you knew right from wrong, so you weren't insane, and you can't say you want mental Mm. health care treatment. Well, okay, What we have to do is bring some sense to those situations. We have to make the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity or not criminally responsible real so that a lot of people who would say, I didn't mean it, I I was in the grips of psychosis or I was under the influence of, you know, an addictive drug, which, by the way, doesn't apply at all as to the non responsible based on criminal based on insanity factor um if you're if you're using drugs and that alters your mental status that's not a defense we've got to broaden or at least allow the rational application of a plea of not guilty by reason Mm. of insanity and then people have a choice too you put forward that plea we take it seriously we're going to treat you until such time as you seem to be making sense, because we can't expose the public to somebody who's sick. It's the same as tuberculosis. We had folks who went in and were you know, sequestered away from the rest of folks until they got better. We don't hate those people. Sure. Sure. Right? We're just trying to help them and help ourselves by saying, until you're well, and by the way, it's a fallacy that people can't get well from psychiatric illness. They get well all the time, 99% of the time, if you treat them with the effective medications and other techniques we have. One of the uh, the other, the, the previous mayor of New York, wh- he made mental health a big issue. They had this big program called Thrive NYC, 
And one of the things that they did is they spent $6 million a year on what they called mental health first aid, which was an all-day training course that, teach the, that taught the public how to identify people so asymptomatic for mental illness that you needed essentially special training to identify them. Yeah. Is that part of the problem, though, Keith, is that we're spending money not on the Jordan Neelys, but on people that are so well-adjusted, at least as far as mental illness goes, that they're never going to be a threat to someone on a subway platform. I think that is part of the problem. And spending money, here we are, you know, we're housing. Look, I mean, let's not conflate different issues. But, you know, New York is spending so much money to house uh, illegal immigrants, right? Could we not decide to have mental health mentors? Perhaps we train, like the Guardian Angels, my friend Curtis Sliwa, right? Right, not familiar with him. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard of him. No. Right, exactly. Um, he, He trained an army, essentially, of folks who would help enforce the law and they were disciplined in general and they were they were helpful to many many people why couldn't we have a community service program called mental health mentors these are folks who are trained to reach out okay to people who are having problems and literally maintain contact with them um, empathetically um, connect with them help them get mental health services, check in on them, perhaps use an app on their phones that connects with those other individuals' phones, because many of them have them, the vast majority do. But for that connection, uh, many, many people do things that they would otherwise not do. And that human connection in a time of AI and the degradation of interpersonal connections, if you could train a a core of mental health mentors, I I hope Mayor Adams is listening. He should be listening to you every morning, but I hope he is right now. Train a core of mental health mentors who can go onto the street, who are knowledgeable people, reliable people, perhaps they're nurses who want to get paid something extra, mental health workers. We've got so many of those folks, ER workers, social workers, and let them establish relationships with these people, where they live, where they work, where they congregate. And it is Mental Health Awareness Month. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Keith Abloh, a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, Keith, let me ask you about this before we uh, run out of time. Very sad situation with Heather Armstrong, a, a pioneering mommy blogger who killed herself last Tuesday. And uh, they're saying, and she had a history of alcoholism, clinical depression. So, I mean, the chances are she might have been driven to suicide by any number of things. But they're saying a lot of the anti-fans of hers, the negative comments about her on social media, really uh, pushed her over over the top when it came to depression. Now, I've seen some of the negative things that have been said about me on social media. I've seen a lot of things that have been said in the press and on social media about you. And (laughs) we're not going to uh, kill ourselves no matter what people say. Why does someone like Heather Armstrong get pushed over the edge by one of these negative comments 
And how do you identify those folks that are vulnerable and at risk of being pushed over the edge by criticism? Wow. Well, let's not forget that Heather Armstrong was already a vulnerable person. Yes, she had, uh, you know, rallied and overcome an addiction. Yes, she was, you know, a blogger followed by millions, but she had struggled. And, you know, the core questions that um, fuel things like alcoholism or heroin dependence or depression, the core questions about am I worthwhile? Um, maybe the you know if the if the fragile underpinnings of your life were set in motion when you were a kid because perhaps uh, you, you weren't shown enough love, you know, that can can stalk you if you will. It can lead you to want to anesthetize yourself with alcohol, and then you know the onslaught of cruel people saying you're not a worthwhile person, um, you're horrible, you're this, you're that can echo inside you it goes past the rational sort of processing of an adult to the kid inside you and i don't want to sound too new agey but it's really true Mm. you know and for her she may not have been hearing or reading those comments as an adult blogger she was hearing them or reading them as a little girl affected by the same emotional dynamics that she was affected by then and not even really registering that that's who was listening or reading. Keith, I have uh, uh, 30 seconds left and you got to come back. We're going to do this again soon. Very quickly, tell me what uh, you're up to with Four Brain Fog. What is this? What's your involvement? Well, I, I invented Four Brain Fog, the number four words, brain fog, uh, to help people think more clearly uh, post-COVID and the rest of it, there are lots of people with brain fog. This is a natural supplement. If you take it, you might well, and I, I, I do, I've used it, um, think especially clearly, especially if you go on early morning talk shows. So it's <laughs> called For Brain Fog. It seems, um, yeah, forbrainfog.com, and I'm mentioning it because, of course, we want to sell the supplement. But, but it sounds trivial in the face of the issues that we've been talking about. Let's not forget, Jordan Neely was a human being sure. who lost his his parent to murder, okay, his mother to murder when he was just a young person, and then he fell apart. He has a story. He's not just a guy on a subway ranting. And yeah, we don't think we want to find this fellow guilty, and I don't think he should be found guilty. But it's a tragedy nonetheless. Absolutely. Absolutely. People could check that out. I'm going to try this as well. Uh, for brain fog. Wonderful. Brain Great. Fog. That's what I was hoping. All right. Not that you're not sharp, Frank. You're sharp. You. No, you're believe sharp. me, I need all the help I can get. All right. Um, I'll, if, uh, and if it works, I'll give some to our friend Curtis Lewa as well. Keith Ablo, it's it. always a treat to talk with you. Thank you. Good luck. Take care, brother. If you want to comment, any subject, 15 seconds, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Rusty. Yeah, when's that two faced shit gonna stop calling the mayor his friend? All of a sudden, it's Frank, him and Bo. What, are they getting something off the guy? Russ. 
Hey, Frank, denial is affirmation. If someone denies something obvious, then they are affirming the truth they want to cover up. That's why the subway predator from West Islip wants to be called a hero in order to cover up his own unhinged criminal behavior. Neil. My happy meal isn't Chicken McNuggets. It's Sofia Vergara and Gal Gadot for dessert. Fred. Frank, the other day I was at Rockland Lake. I see this guy strap two pieces of cork to his feet. He starts walking across the lake. I wonder if that was Gordon Lightfoot reincarnated. Raji. Rocco. I don't. I... What do you what do you know about the mob? Well, what do you really know about the mob? I worked with the Italian businessman. What do much, you know? Not much. David. Yes, for those of you who don't trust the government, why do you want to give them more power to declare people mentally disturbed and lock them up? Think about that. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Uh, tomorrow, we will have the other side of the chemtrail debate. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Dale Wigington. Got some other fun stuff tomorrow as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Frank Moreno, good day.